Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. Uh, let me start out by just going over what we'll cover today in the workshop. Uh, if you want to go to this site, I'd rather be writing.com slash learn API doc. And in the first little section, click workshop activities. This gives you the plan for what we're going to do today. You can't see? Oh, a bit bigger. OK. Uh, if you, if, uh, my intent is also that you can go to this page uh, as well, so hopefully you can see it. Basically, we're going to go through three different parts. First, we'll have an intro to API documentation, where we'll get into each of the, the core sections of a reference topic, endpoints and requests and responses, and you know what's expected in each of those. Then we'll jump into part two, open API and Swagger. The open API is a formal standard for describing APIs, and Swagger is one of the most common ways that uh, it gets uh, rendered and so forth. And then uh, we will look at uh, non-reference content in API docs. So this is the, the stuff that um, is not the reference topics. It is, uh, hold on, sorry. I am recording this. I just want to make sure I, I'm not like, have a too high of a level on the recording. So I just want to turn that down. The non-reference content refers to stuff like the authorization and getting started tutorials and the workflow between setting things up and how the endpoints might interact and so forth. Um, more of the how-to and the tutorial and the conceptual content. All right, and along the way we have various activities. So in the first section we're going to do a few activities related to uh, making requests and using Postman and so forth. And then we're going to jump down into uh, using the Swagger editor. We're going to use a visual modeling tool called Stoplight to work with it. Uh, and then we're going to we're going to do uh, a, a GitHub workflow. Um, if you look through this course, I also have some some sections on uh, like publishing tools. But since last night we spent a long a lot of time talking about publishing tools, um, I'll only talk about publishing tools that are very API doc specific. Um, and we'll probably talk about that. Uh, I'm not really sure where. Maybe in part two. Okay. Does there, is everybody online? Has everybody accessed the network? Okay. Uh, any questions before we get started? I, I did have a list of things to download, it, and that's great if you've already done that. If you haven't, don't worry about it because um, you'll, there'll be time to to do some of it between this. We're going to take breaks at, at each part before after each part, you have like a five, 10 minute break. Um, if you have questions and so forth, you know, this is a workshop, it's interactive. The whole point is that you come here to learn and, and the idea of a workshop is that you, you actually do hands-on things. It's not just like a lecture. Uh, and so that's why I've got these activities. My experience in workshops is that even the simplest technical exercise becomes magnified with all kinds of uh, complexity, glitches, different setups, different machines, different surprises. So I try to keep these simple. At the same time, um, uh, the, there's a lot that we, we can do to, to increase the, the complexity on some of them. Um, the, other, the other challenge with workshops is that there's such a variety of knowledge. You've got one person who's practically like an API designer next to somebody who doesn't even know what API stands for, right? So 
This challenge is, is always uh, it's frustrating because for one person, things might be moving a little slow, and another person, they're moving too fast. So just be patient. If you are like, hey, I already know all this stuff, we'll probably get to parts of the course where there's new material. And if you're new and ramping up, you have the comfort of knowing that, hey, a lot of this is online. Um, I've got this course that I've been working on. Um, you know, my, my initial goal with this course was to like publish it into a book, and I'm still heading towards that direction. I'm refining it, I'm getting feedback, but this space is changing fast. Like, um, I wrote a tutorial on, for example, using pull requests in GitHub last year, and then I was looking at it this year, I'm like, crap, I have to rewrite everything. <laughs> um, so, it's, it's a challenge. All right, any questions before we jump into things? Yeah, yeah. or let's start here and then you. Uh, this is learn. If you if you just click this right here, you go to it. Learn API. So let me start back at at the blog. <coughs> if you go to I'd rather be writing .com, yeah. click API doc, mm -hmm. expand this first section. Workshop activities. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I also have links to some of the slides. The slides are online, and we'll jump into this first section: intro to API documentation. Oh, you had a question back there, sorry. Same question. Same question, anybody else have? <laughs> okay. All right, um, so. Oh, I am recording this, and I usually publish the recordings later, so if you wanna check it out. But, but uh, again, this is where you can, you can access things, I just covered that. Let's jump into a little bit about uh, APIs. Application Programming Interface, you know, what does that mean? Um, it. Uh, actually, hold on, yeah. A APIs refer to, just as a general definition, it's the way two different systems interact. Uh, you have two different computers talking to each other and they use certain language and, and modes to communicate, and we'll dive into that later. But first, let's talk about the market for REST API documentation. You're all here probably because, well, I shouldn't make generalizations, but the market for REST API docs is pretty good. Uh, especially if you're in the Bay Area, it's hot. I mean, you will find lots of jobs if you have good API doc skills. Uh, we're talking six-figure incomes. This is a good space to be in. The, the traditional side of TechCom, where you're just documenting graphical user interfaces, you're not really working in developer doc spaces, um, there's still lots of jobs in that area, but uh, it's not as in high demand. Uh, technical skills are becoming more and more the reality. And why, why is API doc so uniquely kind of um, uniquely in demand? Well, with graphical user interfaces, you have an application that you can use. And, and a lot of times users, they can figure out stuff on their own, right? They just tinker around and they figure it out. It's not the case with an API doc. There's no user interface for somebody to use an API. Uh, they, the user interface is the documentation. Um, that is the user inter interface. So companies who want to have a good product need a good product interface, AKA docs, right? They need good documentation to sell their product. So the doc is the product interface and that's why Companies say, we need somebody who can write good docs because we need to have a good product. Um, and a great site, Programmable Web, did a, 
uh, survey about you know, what do developers want in API documentation? And they, they found that, that, you know, or not in API documentation, what do developers want in APIs? At the very top of the list is complete and accurate documentation. Um, it's more important to developers than any other part of it, right? So given this sort of recipe that the product or the documentation is the interface, it's the most important element to developers, there's a super high demand for it, um, this is a good space to be in, and it's, it's a good space to develop your skills to be able to, to um, deliver uh, in this space. All right. Uh, there are lots of different types of APIs. Uh, web APIs are kind of the, the most recent and, and most common APIs, but APIs are not new. They've been around since, I don't know, whenever. Um, Java APIs, C++ APIs, PHP APIs are, are what I call library-based APIs. And with the library API, you would, you get a, basically, uh, you get files that you download and incorporate into your Java project, for example. And then that, these, these files allow you to, you know, do additional capabilities that you didn't have before. Um, that is the old kind of style of API documentation. Web APIs do a similar thing, but across the web. And web APIs have been growing exponentially. This, this chart uh, tracks their growth since 2005. I think one of the first APIs was one with eBay to allow like people who had listings to update all their, their product pages programmatically and so forth. So it, they've been growing exponentially, but web APIs or REST APIs uh, are, are the most common. Um, and part of the, the growth is fueled by this larger uh, paradigm of the web where we have a, a services mashup. We have lots of individual services and they all interact. This is, this is kind of the scary thing about the web as well as the, the neat thing about the web. For example, um, on my blog, and uh, most people's blogs, if you want a comment feature, you might implement a service called Discuss, which interacts with its uh, store of information through different APIs, um, or a poll service, or Facebook comments, or other kinds of things. Um, you, you tie them together through these APIs. And the web is this kind of loosely coupled um, web of APIs that are interacting. The scary part is that um, you know, we don't always know how these different systems are going to interact and so you have a lot of like things that are built without full knowledge of how they're going to work with other things and so that can lead to sort of these uh, scenarios of complexity but that's sort of another topic. All right, so what is a REST API? I like to think of it as, as, as a gear here. Uh, if you think of one system on the left, another system on the right, and you want them to interoperate, to interact, the API is that gear in the middle that allows the two to communicate. Um, if you think about like something as simple as YouTube, you have a YouTube video on your web page. Um, that, that you don't actually have YouTube on your page. You've got calls that are being made to a YouTube service for a video and then a response that 
returns the video back to your page. So uh, that works the same with Facebook and other kind of systems. You know, you don't actually have Facebook on your page. You have comments that are being pulled from a Facebook API back to your um, site. Or Twitter. Twitter's a great example. You've got how many Twitter clients that tell you your latest followers and stuff. Those are all driven by APIs. You've got one system that's interacting with another. Um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, you can, another example might be something as simple as your calculator. Now, this is probably not the best example because a calculator wouldn't use an API. But um, let's say you, you push a button, 8 plus 9 equals. Well, when I push a button in an interface, behind the scenes, there are functions that are kicking off and executing processes and then returning information. With this calculator, all those are, are on my computer. But with an API, the same kind of processes happen uh, through, the, through requests to the external services on the web. You, you've got UIs, uh, you press buttons, a call goes out to a service, brings back information, and presents it into the UI. So even if you're not, um, if you're using any kind of like user interface, a lot of times underneath is a bunch of APIs that are powering it. And that's why this documentation is geared towards developers, because they're creating these interfaces that are powered by APIs. Um, to give you one example, uh, I was working on a, on a project at work, and uh, th this API had two components, one for administrators and one for like um, more of like the end user experience. And the administrator UI had a bunch of calls on how to set things up, how to create these different, um, uh, sorry, I'm pausing because I realize it's an unreleased project and I can't actually be specific about it. So it's, it's got these, these groups of things that you can create and manage. Um, and so, uh, but it's, it's just an API. And the intent is that a developer would create a user interface with buttons. You click, you know, new group and executes an API request to the group endpoint, creates a group, comes back, and then it shows you know, that information which is then displayed in the, is in the user interface. Um, oh, I actually have a full screen mode here. Um, here is a, a model of how this uh, request and response works. You have some computer, some application. Uh, it could be in Ruby, it could be in anything. The cool thing about web APIs is that they're, they're pretty much language agnostic, meaning they don't have to be made in Java or, or PHP. You can make a request in any language. It goes out to some server in the cloud, some API service, which can also be in any language. That service could be in Java, it could be in, in C++, whatever, right? You don't have to have a, a continuity of languages. The protocol that is used is HTTP. So the same protocol that you use for visiting web pages and so forth, hypertext transport protocol that we type all the time when you go to a website, um, is used to send this information as well as return it. So it, it all just boils down to requests. How do I make the request? And what comes back? The response. If you think about the, the web, uh, a lot of this is second nature because the web itself follows REST. When you go to I'd rather be writing.com, 
you're typing an HTTP uh, request using, you're actually using a get method. You're sending a URL, you're plugging it into a browser. It's going to that page. The page says, oh, here's the information, here's the response, sending it back and the browser just makes it look pretty, right? There's, um, if you look at the code, you just see that it's returned a bunch of HTML, but uh, really the same sort of principle is what powers a web API. Now let's give a sample sort of scenario. Let's say that I wanted to make a biking app. Um, let's say that I, 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 I don't know why it's being cut off at the bottom there, sorry. Let's say that I'm, I'm making a biking app because I want to know if it's windy out, how cold it is, how much the wind is blowing before I get out biking, right? This is what you want to know. If the speed is, if it is really like a 29, 29 uh, mile an hour wind, you don't want to be out biking unless it's behind you. So how could you do this? Well, you would find a weather API of some kind that would have this information. You create a user interface, you add some buttons, and they make calls and return the information. And here's a quick little demo. Doesn't quite have the, the same, oh, eh. Of course, I, cl I click it and it doesn't go to, okay. Let, let me, okay, I think I've got it. Oh, maybe I just had it here. All right. So if you're looking here, you can see I've got this code on a page and I don't have a fancy UI, but I've got a button that says check wind conditions. Now when I click this button, it's going to go out to a weather API and retrieve information and pull it into the interface. So the, right now the wind chill is 54 degrees Celsius. This is Sunnyvale, by the way. Uh, wind direction and so forth is this degrees and the speed is not really that windy. Um, now, in this case, this sample uses JavaScript, specifically Ajax, to make the request. Uh, but you could use the same sort of scenario in any kind of um, um, user interface. Um, a more complex example might be a whole weather site that has all kinds of information. You go to weather.com. You know, all that stuff is retrieved through APIs. Even if you go to a sports site, you go to ESPN and you see all the stats about what the score is and who's got how many rebounds and how many points and field goals. You know, nobody's typing that into a table. That's pulled from an API. So all this information is uh, on the web is driven by APIs. Okay. Um, <clears throat> So let's check out a sample API. And the approach that I'm kind of taking here is that first we look to see how a developer would kind of use an API. Um, and then when you get this sense of how a developer would use an API, it, it naturally leads you to understand like what elements they would need to document it. So if you are at the workshop activities page, let me close a couple of these, where it says activity one, explore an API. There's a couple of weather APIs we're gonna check out. One is the, one of the simplest weather APIs that I could find. And then one is one of the most robust weather APIs. Um, so this first one where it says Mashape weather API, click that, go to that, and we'll check it out first. Let me 
make sure we're on track here, yeah. Now, uh, MashShape is kind of this marketplace of APIs and so forth that, you know, supposedly you go through and you see what APIs are of interest to you and you can uh, consume them and so forth. But it's, it's kind of very simplistic in, in my experience here, um, especially this weather one. And there we go. Okay, so this is made by a developer um, and they have a very specific template. I really hate to stop you, but I'm having a hard time seeing the screen and I'm not able to get to where you're at on my computer. Okay. So can you do the one, two, three for me how to get there? Yeah, okay, all right, sorry. sorry. Let, me, let me back up right here. Are you, are you able to get to this page where it says intro to API documentation? I'm intro to REST APIs is where I'm at. Uh, make sure. Back to learn, learn API doc. Yeah, learn API doc. Okay. Expand the first section. Uh -huh. Click workshop activities down at the bottom. Okay, so that I did not find. And oh, you didn't see that? Hit, hit. Um. Mine's not loading, so I don't. Know. It's just try refreshing. Um, mine didn't load, and then I refreshed. Yeah, try refreshing. Sorry, I added this little page yesterday. Uh, or just type slash workshop dash activities dot html after it or command shift r i told you we'd run into technical glitches but i didn't think we'd get to it that early <laughs> but uh okay who uh, now it takes a while for this page to load i think because uh the thing about well networks is that they work fine when you test them out individually but then when you when you have 30 people in the same space all going to the same page making the request at the same time it's different so it might take a minute for this page to load, but uh, if not, you can hopefully see it here. I'll try to make it a little bit bigger before it loses things. There's not a lot here. Um, this API has three endpoints, AQI, weather, weather data. AQI stands for Air Quality Index. But I just wanted to pull this out because it, it helps to start simple. What are, what are the basics of API documentation in a most basic example? And uh, let's look at the weather data one. This is a, a better endpoint. Um, this has a brief description below it. Gets the weather forecast by longitude and latitude. You have a parameter section. It tells you what type of parameters these are. They call them URL parameters. Uh, other people might call them query string parameters. But there's two parameters, lat and LNG, latitude and longitude and it gives you a sample value. Now with this, with this site, you, the idea is that you could enter in latitude and longitude of your choosing, click, click test endpoint, and you actually get the response. Um, the, another section here is request header. So this is also part of, part of the documentation. What needs to be submitted in the header to authorize it. And here there's a special key. This is the API key. Uh, and it's going to populate by default if you were logged in and so forth from, from your application. On the right, there's a couple of other components. The endpoint definition, as they call it. This is the URL that's going to be submitted. This is a get method. In other words, it's just retrieving information. It's not creating it. There's a sample of how to submit this, and it's formatted in curl, and then a response, a sample response of what you're going to get back, and what's the 
what's the format of it. So these different components, uh, the endpoint name, description, parameters, the endpoint definition method, request example response body, this is kind of the core of what is expected in an API reference topic. Tom? Yeah. Are URL parameters, one, is that a key value pair? Is that considered a key value pair? Um, in this case, my next question is: Are those parameters the same then as like the key value, the field and field descriptions for the requests? The field and field descriptions for where, where are you seeing that part? Well, the I was field. asking kind of in general. Yeah. So, well, in this in this case, these are query string parameters. So they're they're, uh, and I'll jump into this in a. In a minute, but they're added in the URL. And are they key value pairs? Yes, but not a key value pair like in JSON. They are going to be added, if you look at this sample request, they're going to be added with a question mark followed by like lat equals one, and then ampersand LNG equals whatever. But there are different types of parameters, and we'll dive more into this later. There's a request body parameter that might have a JSON snippet that has each of these as key value pairs in a more traditional format. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's another type of parameter called a path parameter. So one challenge in API documentation, and I'll be jumping into this more later, is that there's not a standard for how people call things. They call these URL parameters, but uh, another developer might call them query string parameters. Another developer might just call them params or something. Um, and, and this sort of variation in termino terminology is rampant. I was working on an API at my work that a developer wrote. They just kind of did their own uh, templating and formatting. And uh, one, one group decided to call them methods. Here are, here are our API methods. And another group working on another API uh, different, different area, you know, not, not crossing over in any way, called them the API interfaces. And they're, they're referring to endpoints right here. Some people call these objects or resources. You know, there's a lot of variation. So there's a strong need to standardize how people approach this documentation. And that's where the open API thing will come in. But we're not quite there yet. Um, we're just kind of getting the basic shape of what's required. Notice here in the top also you have a fancy little feature that lets you see how to submit this same request in lots of other ways. The default is curl because it's kind of something anybody can run in their, in their browser. Wait, where are we? Where are we? Ah, okay, the curl. But if I switch over to Java, it will say, hey, this is how you would, would make this same web request in Java or uh, node PHP, now these are auto-generated, and I'll show you how you can auto-generate them as well. Whether they're that useful, not really sure, but developers do like easy code snippets. Okay, any questions, thoughts? Now let's look at this second workshop, or the second link, the Eris Weather API. Now, somebody once told me they, they felt the MashShape Weather API here that I use as a basic example is kind of like a toy API, <laughs> and I agree. In fact, this AQI endpoint consistently does not work. 
but this Eris Weather API is a real API. <laughs> and this is one I was actually very happy. They reached out to me and gave me like a free API key because they just discovered that I had used them as an example in my course. And, and they were like, that's awesome. We're giving you a free API key. Well, because the other one expires every two months, the free one. If you look at this one, there's lots of different APIs. They even have like a lightning API. So they've got different segments of them. And right away, even if I jump into the reference part, jump into endpoints, um, you can see that they've described them a heck of a lot more. Right? So you've got, you, you've got uh, much more, a, a much more extensive description. And if I jump into forecasts, for example, uh, you can see that each of these parameters has been described. And now they like to adopt this convention of putting a little colon before things. Um, and you've got another area that's like, hey, these are the supported parameters that are all defined. Um, they've got supported filters. So this is very robust. You've got, a, you've got a core endpoint, but then you add all kinds of stuff to it to configure exactly what you want returned. And this is sort of a, when you, when you start to work more with APIs, you'll realize that there's a lot to the design of an API. Uh, sometimes developers will have like a couple of endpoints and 75 different parameters on how you can configure it. Other times, they'll have 75 different endpoints and almost no configuration. Um, and and there, there's, there's uh, lots of people that you could probably read about best practices with design, uh, but, but you'll have an opportunity to work with different, different models and provide input. Anyway, so this shows you that uh, endpoint documentation can be a lot more robust. We've got response properties. And this is one that, you know, I don't really throw people into it at the start because there's a lot here, right? It's hard to take it in in one glance. Um, but we've got these same sections, parameters, examples, response, properties, and so forth. Okay. Uh, we are going to make some requests with some of these. Um, now, with both of these examples, you, you need API keys to make the request. But whenever I try to, to do this in the past where I like tell people how to get the API keys, it's way, way more work. So I just, I, I'm going to give you some API keys that you'll, you'll use, and they should just work. Um, <clears throat> we're going to first start out making some requests in Postman. So if you have not downloaded Postman, you should do this now. You can go to get Postman. Whoops, not get pocket. Get Postman. And click download the app. There's two versions. Or actually, there's three versions. Postman for Mac, Postman for Windows, Postman for Linux. So. Uh, Raise your hand if you have not set up Postman, because I do want you to make sure you've got this. I'll give you a, oh, just three people. Sweet. OK. Go ahead and start setting that up while I give you a brief overview of Postman. Postman is a, a, a REST client, which basically means it's a way that you can submit requests in a nice graphical user interface that looks kind of like this. Uh, and you can see the responses. It makes it really easy. You don't have to use Postman. There's other applications. 
one of them is, is curl. You could submit stuff straight in the command line, and I'll jump into that in a little bit. But this is probably the more common one, and Postman is probably the most popular <coughs> REST client. There, there are at least a dozen different ones you could use. There's a nice one for the Mac called PAW, P-A-W, but it costs 30 bucks or so. And, uh, you know, probably has functionality that you might not even care about. Um, so go ahead and open up Postman. Yeah, I realize it's a little small. Try to make it bigger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can use them interchangeably. Okay. I'll talk more about curl in a little bit. In curl, you're going to be submitting the parameters. You're specifying them in a more like programmatic way. But yeah, the the I believe Postman probably submits a lot of stuff using curl in the back uh, in a way you can't see. I'm not really sure. Um, but if you are at the workshop activities, we're going to try something here. Skip down to activity Postman client and click this run in Postman button. See what happens. See if you can get it to populate your Postman client with the information that 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 little script there contains. Uh, if you click it, it will say open with Postman for Mac or Chrome. I don't know why it's prompting me for Chrome. But uh, hopefully, if you're on Windows, it'll say Postman for Windows. And then when you open it, it should populate this left section with a little place that says Workshop. And it will have a bunch of calls. So try that and see if that works. I'll be excited if it does. Um, by the way, I, I, I really like Postman. And I'm, I'm part of this, this podcast. And one of my co-hosts actually got us an, an interview with the founder, and he was telling us about it. And uh, you know, I had mostly used Postman as a as a way to do do testing of requests and so forth. Um, and he kind of unraveled uh, what else the platform can do. They even have it. They even have like a, a doc hosting solution uh, with a one-click kind of button. Um, they, the way they envision Postman is that developers spend time building requests in here. They set up the parameters, and then you should just be able to export that into documentation. It shouldn't be like a separate tool. It's this is where you define things. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about other Windows users. Some Windows users, are not, it's not opening for them. Ah. Uh, can you can we download straight now? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, if you have, well, if you're a Windows user, it's not opening. Try the Chrome extension then. There's a. I thought they. I thought they abandoned the Chrome extension. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Try that. Um, or you you can plug this in directly, but I think uh, it's going to be easier if you if you do the Chrome extension. Sorry, it's the downside of not having a PC is that I sometimes become blind to them. I actually have a PC at work, but. I hate turning it on. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> it wouldn't work on yours? OK. Well, I'll give you a couple minutes. Um, raise your hand if, if uh, you don't see this little workshop section with pre-populated stuff, so I can know. OK, six or seven. And how many of you are trying the, the Chrome extension one? 
All right, search for Chrome Chrome app um, Postman client. See if you can find it. Yes. Did I make that? No, I did I not make. I don't know if you can, can you like right click on it, or is that run as Postman like a whole? Um. Yeah. Let me. Okay. So. I should have had this. I did have a link here previously, and then I took it away. Let me let me see something. Okay, so I will I will update with the link here. Give me one second. Okay. Okay. Open with Electron. Wow, you're special. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so give me a second here, and uh, as soon as something updates, I'll, I'll show you how you can import a link. Okay, so if you are not able to click this little button, then refresh this page, refresh the workshop page, and you'll see a thing that says, from this link. Wait, okay, so we're gonna go back to the go, go back to the workshop page. I just updated this page, so it says, populate Postman from the run-in Postman button or from this link. Okay, well, I don't have those pictures at all on the left-hand side of my screen, and I'm in workshop. You don't have these pictures? You must have an ad blocker. You have an ad blocker? Anyway, refresh your page. Refresh your page. You should see the link. I just added it. Right click and copy the link address. No? <laughs> it's not showing up? Try, try um, what is it? Command, control R to refresh and it bursts the the cache of the page? Okay. Uh, how about another browser? Open another browser, same link? Should we just copy that link to the browser? Yeah, copy that link. No, not into a browser. If you want to import the link, go to import and then import from link and paste that link in here. This is. Yep, yep, okay. All right. You're going to click. Don't actually click the link. Copy the, copy the link address. Go into Postman. And do you see an import button up here? Import. Do you see an import from link? 
paste this guy in here, click import, see if that works. That does work? Okay. Can, can you help her? She, she's not getting the link on the page. It, she needs to refresh the page somehow or, or maybe open a new window. Did you add a link to Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's her. It, there, there. There's five requests in that workshop collection. All right. Okay, that's looking good. Does anybody else need help? Does anybody does? Link are they supposed to download? Uh, no, they just copy the link address. Okay. And go into into Postman, click Import. Okay. That's an interesting address. When you click Import, and then there should be a tab that says Import from Link. Sweet. So what was the deal? Why? Uh, no, sorry. I've got some other stuff here. Yeah. Yeah, I should have clarified. I should just delete these other ones, actually. Uh, Everybody else good? All right, so let's take a look at some of these requests. There's a... So, first of all, the run in postman button can be pretty helpful. There's actually, while I'm, while I'm on this topic, if you, if you look at the Postman network, I don't really know how you get to it uh, from their site, but if you look at this, they feature a ton of people who have implemented this run in Postman button in their API documentation, and you can see how they do it. It's kind of cool. But it's perfect for a getting started tutorial because you can help a user suddenly have uh, their own instance of all, their, all of your API requests right in a, in a client that they can use. So uh, you might just think about that. The way that you, that you generate that button, uh, which you know doesn't work for everybody and has problems as we can, can see, um, but by and large, the way you, you get it is super simple. Once you save your requests in here as a collection, you click this little arrow to expand it, click share, click embed button, it gives you the code. You just paste it, or you get this link. So it's that easy to share things. Uh, and the, the idea of Postman is that everybody, and this is where their paid model kicks in, but let's say your whole team has an account and you're sharing a collection of, of requests that are configured a specific way, um, and you're all in sync, right? And then as a tech writer, heck, you've got like what you need to document right there. So. Anyway, but we're not really using team sharing and syncing. Now this first one, get the weather in Flagstaff, Arizona, is using the ARIS API. And uh, let me just give a kind of a small tour of how you get around in this thing. 
In the main text area is where you'll paste your endpoint definition or the, the URL. To the left of it, you choose the method. You can see there's, wow, I didn't realize there were that many methods. <laughs> I thought there were only like six. <laughs> I've never heard of lock, prop, prop find. Maybe these are some custom ones. Anyway, uh, get, post, delete are probably the most common. But this is a get request. On the right, if you click params, it expands all the parameters. Now, the parameters are also added after every question mark. It says question mark client dash ID equals and then, and then ampersand. That's how you connect query string, query string parameters together in the browser. But it also shows them broken out here so that you can easily edit them. And here we've got a client ID and a secret, which are populated from that link. So you know, normally you would have to sign up for those and you know, figure out what they are. Uh, we've got a limit and a has now. These are some filters from the Aris Weather API about how to specify the time and what you want returned. Uh, <clears throat> let's see, anything else worth calling out? As far as headers go, uh, normally you would pass the API key in, into the header, but a lot of times you, you also just put it as a query string parameter here. Um, and if you click send, it's making the request, and then down at the bottom, you will see the response. Uh, <clears throat> there should be a little an option here to specify what format of the response. If you wanted to just see it in plain text, you could. You can switch that around. You can you can see it in a pretty way, which just means formatted, or raw, which would be minified. So, pretty much, you want to keep it as JSON and pretty. And it shows you what's coming back here. This, this endpoint is showing us, uh, I believe, the weather in Flagstaff, Arizona. Let's say that we were you know, looking for a nice climate to retire or something. This returned the information. Uh, you can see what is coming back here. As a developer, this would be of interest to you. What, am I getting information that's going to be useful in my scenario? Now go, to this, go ahead and click Send. Did everybody get an actual response back? Awesome. Yes. Okay. Now let's go to the next one, migraines in Tennessee. This is just another example. This is using a different Aris weather API. They actually have some kind of migraine index that where you can see if like where you're at is susceptible to lead to migraine headaches, which is kind of crazy, huh? Um, but if you had migraines, this would be cool to see if like maybe there's certain weather conditions that high pressure, low pressure, I don't know, um, that contribute to it. So click send and take a look at what information you get back here. Um, I'm going to dive into the different, what, the form of this information, but we've got arrays and objects and arrays inside of, or objects inside of arrays and so forth, key value pairs and, you know, this is, there's, there's some, some, things to know about the format that we'll get into later. Let's click weather in Ecuador. Click send and we can see what the weather is like in Ecuador. And if you, if you expand the parameters, you can see that here we've got a limit of one. Um, a lot of stuff is just specified directly in the path. We'll talk about this later, but here, Chimbozaro, Ecuador comes before the question mark. That means this is a path parameter, and the rest is a query string parameter. We'll get into that later. Uh, but here you can see what's coming back. 
Um, but essentially, this is what API documentation is about. How do, you, how do I make the request, and what comes back? And that's essentially what you're documenting. Now, the last two are from the Mashape, Mashape API, Weather API on Mashape. And here, if you click params, you'll see that there's just two, the latitude and the longitude, which I believe is configured to Sunnyvale. Um, and you could add more parameters. You just add them there. But what's different is that the headers now has uh, an x-mashape key, and we've got an accept parameter that says, what kind of information will we accept in the request? Well, we will only accept JSON. A lot of times this is sort of passed by default, I think. Um, but if you click send here, uh, for some reason this seems to return it in JSON. I think it's per in text initially, so switch to JSON. And you can see what's coming back and the information. Um, <clears throat> not only do you have to document, you know, a sample response, or uh, yeah, a sample response and a sample request. But in your response, you should document each property and, and the allowed values and the data types, and we'll talk more about that. Um, all right, and let's do the final one. Get the weather uh, forecast. This is a different endpoint, just the weather one. And this one actually does just return in plain text. And this is configured to Singapore. All right, so uh, this, the way this works is pretty easy. You, you, would, you would come in here, you click the plus tab to create a new one, you would enter that information, you could save it. When you choose to save it, if you want to keep it, you can put it in a collection. It just sort of prompts you with that. And this way you can have all the endpoints for your documentation stored here. You can go through them. You can actually do a lot of testing from here. For example, if I expand this and click Run, this is going to run some tests. So this is a way to see, oh, hey, did the developers change a bunch of stuff? Or for testers, probably, more, more accurately, to, to run through all of these different scenarios and requests and make sure things are, are working. Um, so you can imagine if you were doing testing, you could do some pretty powerful stuff here if you had hundreds of different combinations and you wanted to quickly see if there were errors. All right, any questions? Postman, pretty awesome. Now, one other thing, uh, if, I, if I forget, I want to mention it here first. To get information in here, if you click Import, you'll notice that you can also import an open API file. They call it Swagger, but that's just the previous name of open API. So if you, once you have this definition of an API, you can import it here, drop it in here, paste it in here, and it will populate the same thing. In fact, it will even, it will even add it in a more formal way. Um, let's see, I think I have it here. Nope, I may have deleted it. Anyway, it will, it will put more of a description and import the descriptions of things and uh, show it more conceptually, so. All right, questions? I don't know. Maybe. Have you run into a size limit? Well, I'm just wondering because the run feature sounds really cool for what we need to oh. do. Because we have to use a different set of software. And so 
huge. Yeah, so if you, how many tests can you run in there? I do not know. I've actually never used that run feature myself. I was just sort of exploring it and realized that they'd added it. There are lots of tools to do unit testing. Uh, by unit testing, we mean you're testing like one specific part of something, not a comprehensive, holistic sort of test, uh, such as a test of an endpoint. Um, there's another tool called RunScope that's very popular. And uh, um, we're going to talk more about Stoplight. But basically, any API platform that tries to offer lots of services is going to offer testing, because you've got the endpoints in there. And they can build services to test them. So it's not really it's not really a unique Postman feature. They 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 just have been adding it to try to have parity with others. All right, let's talk briefly about curl. Uh, curl is a is a, a command a CLI command. What does CLI stand for? Command language interface. Anyway, it's it's what you use in a terminal to submit the same requests. I like to use iTerm, but if you have, uh, whoops, clear that, whatever that was. Um, if you have, ah, if you have, uh, on a Mac, you can go to something called terminal. Let me open that too. Terminal, it looks highly similar. I should probably just use that, all right? Or on a PC, you can go to a command prompt um, and do the same thing. Now, this is a part where you, you kind of had to have curl installed if you're on Windows. It's a pain to install. I don't know why. Uh, it's just, if you, ha if you have it, great. We'll just do one quick exercise and walk through this. But curl is often used because when you think about the sample requests that you'll need to make, how are you going to show that, right? The Postman thing is, ne is neat, but it, it sort of organizes these different components in its own interface. Curl is nice because it gives you a code snippet that you can easily paste here, and people will understand, oh, dash h, this means this must be passed in the header. Uh, dash dash get, oh, it's a get request, and so forth. Um, so the way curl works, let me do a quick copy and paste here of this code. And I'll come into, let me come into, this is a little more readable. Just paste it, and I get back the minified response. It's not going to prettify it. You can actually, there are ways to prettify this in the command line. You have to like do a pipe and do some formatting and so forth. But you can set it up if you really want to use curl. Curl is frequently used by QA teams because they can build scripts that will then push a bunch of different endpoints into the command line and, and do testing in a more robust way. Uh, but you could also take this same response, for example, right here, if you wanted to prettify it, and go to, I'm sure you've seen this site if you work with JSON, JSON pretty print. Um, and you could, you could minif uh, uncompress it, see what it looks like, and, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> now, curl has a lot of different parameters. Here are some of the most common. It's, it's not just used for testing APIs. It's used for a lot of different things. But uh, the dash i means in the response, I want to include the headers. Um, there's actually you know, like a status request that comes back, maybe other information. 
dash D, let's say that you have a JSON file in the request body and you've got it stored in a, in a file rather than like as part of the, the curl command. You can reference that file. Dash H means in the request header. Remember back in Postman, there was this header section uh, right here. Well, these same headers are specified with a dash H. And dash X post would say, hey, use the post method, which will create something, so forth. So there are, there are like hundreds of these different curl commands. And if you really get into curl, you can become a power player and be like, oh, I've got a really advanced thing. But at the end of the day, you've got uh, curl provides a, a language agnostic way to show how to make a request for your API. So if you wanted to, you, you could make that request. But since um, not everybody has curl installed and it's, you've already seen what it does, um, with the, the Postman client, I'm not going to press it. Yes, Dave. Can I ask for, because this is something that's super oh. useful to me. Can you show how to get curl, <clears throat> curl request from, a, from Postman? How to get it from Postman? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't even talk about this. Okay, yeah. So let's come, let's come into Postman. Let's go back to, um, I don't know, go to any one of these. There's a sort of subtle feature in Postman, which it's kind of crazy because they've they've got a UI with all kinds of functionality that I don't even realize until uh, it's pointed out to me sometimes. Over here on the right where it says code. Click code and this shows you how to make this same request in 20 different languages. One of them is curl. So if you click curl, it'll automatically format that that for you. So you can work in Postman and when you're ready to say, "Oh, let me give me the curl snippet for my docs." You just copy this and paste this into your terminal command line, I get back the same response. Or if you wanted JavaScript, remember the, the Ajax one that I was telling you about with the get the wind speed? Um, if I click jQuery, I now have a code sample that I could use directly on my web page. Um, basically, I mean, you have to know a little bit about JavaScript, but not more than a novice to make this work. Uh, I mean, I made it work, right? I'm not a JavaScript programmer. and Basically plug it in. Or if you're in any of these other languages, Java, you can see that every language has its own way of submitting a request, which is leads us back into this, that, that part of the, the mash shape display that showed the different requests in, in different languages, or the same request in different languages. You can automate that here. And a lot of tools that maybe you might use to host your docs would automate that. In my view, uh, you know, since any developer could basically just get the same information here, it doesn't seem that essential to provide all these to people. Uh, but a lot of times, the way most APIs are delivered is that there's a language ag agnostic API, and then it, it, it is accompanied by various SDKs in specific languages. The SDK is how you implement the API in a particular language, usually. So you will have, for example, a REST API for making um, groups or whatever. Accompanying that is probably like a Java SDK that would have like specific Java commands like this and other code that a Java developer would need to implement that API that they could download and incorporate into their project. It's still making requests with the REST API, 
but it's got all the, the like language specific code. So anytime people talk about an SDK, it's, it's tooling to support an API. Um, and it's usually language specific. It's sort of a broad term though. It could mean like a whole kit of tools, uh, but, but generally, and we'll jump into this later, generally it's, it's targeting the language that you think your users will actually use. Any other questions, thoughts? All right, uh, a little bit about the response. So JSON stands for JavaScript Object Notation. In the past, before web APIs, one of the most common APIs was one called SOAP. Um, it was also a web API. So uh, it's not as if it's like a library specific API. But SOAP had a very specific format and if I'm remembering correctly, the responses are in usually in XML. And a lot, of, a lot of the early web APIs have had an XML response. The problem is when you get an XML response, it's hard to plug that into a web page, right? If you've got a web app, you've got a web page, what you need is JavaScript. And JavaScript object notation is readable by JavaScript. Um, so the JSON has basically replaced XML in a lot of scenarios, not every scenario, right? Banking, financial, regulatory might still use XML. But for the most part, the response you get back is JSON because it works on the web and it plugs into JavaScript. You access it using JavaScript. It's very easy. It's a whole different tool chain with XML. But <laughs> JSON has two main types of information, an object and an array. An object you recognize with the curly brace. So this first one is an object with two key value pairs. You separate each one with a comma, set them off with quotation marks. An array is a list and you recognize that with uh, brackets, square brackets. Uh, you can have objects as items in the array you can have an array that contains objects, you know, so you mix and match these if you want. But just be aware of these two different information types. Tom? Yeah. Can an array, is an array also called an enumeration? Uh, yeah, yeah, but an e, they're, they're shortened to enum. An enum is an array that has a finite and defin, def, a definitive list of options. For example, let's say that uh, the array contains only two possible values, highest or lowest. Um, so the enum is like, hey, only these two values are going to come back. Whereas a, a general array could be like any, any kind of uh, item in the list. And enums are typically full K or uh, capitalized, full, full caps. All right. Um, one thing that is also very cool that you should know about is uh, in, in Chrome or Firefox, you can log something to the console, right? When you make a request, and if this is kind of refers to more working in JavaScript, you can, you can log something, th something to the console. You put like console.log slash and then what you're logging there. Uh, and I'm not gonna get into the code details of this. You can see it more on my, my site. But here I've got a request that is being made on the page. And you can't actually see it unless you open up the JavaScript console, uh, view developer JavaScript. And let me magnify, oh, I don't know if I can magnify this part, let me see. 
Yeah, there we go. You can log this object returning returning this the, the, the response to the console. And it looks like this in this sort of uh, expandable collapsible thing. And you can you can see what is coming back. So a lot of times if you're developing and you're, you're trying to make sure that you're actually getting a response back, you can log that response to the console, expand it, see what properties are coming back. It's super useful. Uh, so just keep that little trick in mind uh, if you're starting to use JavaScript. Um, dot notation is how you access different parts of that response. So usually if you're using that, that JavaScript AJAX method, it returns the response in an object that it calls data. And then if you want to access like subnested properties in that object, you use little dots. So data.query.results.channel.win.speed refers to the query object, which has a results object nested in it, a channel object nested in it, a wind object nested in it, and a speed object nested in it. And that is how JavaScript accesses different parts of the response. You have a question or are you just kind of twiddling your thumb? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, um, I already showed this. This was the, the sample that's coming back. Um, all right. Why don't we take a three minute break here uh, and then we'll jump into documenting these different endpoints. We, this first part, you were kind of learning how to use an API like a developer, right? You were making requests, getting responses, a little bit about you know, how those might be displayed on the page. Now we're going to switch hats. We're going to go through each of these sections, but we'll take a five minute break. So now we're going to jump into each of these sections, uh, these eight sections and what you need to document from a documentation point of view, from a perspective there. Uh, resource description, URL methods, and so forth. Okay, so this first one, a resource description. This essentially just is a, a description of what is, what is contained by this resource. Now, exactly what you call these varies a bit, right? People may, may refer to this as like an endpoint description, uh, a method description, but I've called them resource descriptions here because the, the, the model of REST um, has this idea of resources that you're accessing on the web. So you ha this is usually a brief one to three sentence uh, description. It often starts with a verb like returns information about yada, yada, yada. Um, and, and it's not really that extensive. Although you, can, you could see by that Aris Weather API that you, you might have a lot more to say about things if you, if you have a robust API. Here's an example from Eventbrite. If you look at their API on events, their description basically says, allows you to retrieve a paginated response of public event objects. You know, um, so it's, it's not lengthy. Uh, as I said, this is often referred to by different names, which we'll try to sort out when we standardize with the Open API. Uh, the Open API actually calls them paths, which actually aren't used that much. But the one I like, uh, in addition to resource descriptions, might just be like endpoint description. Okay. Second part is the resource URL. Question in the back. Is that where you would define value values? 
No, 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 no. The valid values is going to be in your parameters or your in the requests, like what parameters the request can can have. Uh, could be in the response, although usually a valid value would be the request. But yeah, the request. Any other question? All right, the resource URL. This is the path that you use in the, in that request in order to to send the request. Now there's there's something called a base path that comes before it. That's the same for everything. And then what you tack onto the, onto the end of the base path is usually the end point, um, and that's what you list here in the URL section, this end point after the base path. So the base path is just like what every request uses, like HTTPS uh, colon slash slash mycompany.api.com slash v1 slash, and then all the endpoints are home or whatever it is, um, group, you know, pet, whatever. Okay, not, there's not a whole lot to say about this part. Uh, here's an example with, let's see, this is, I've forgotten, the, oh, this is the Instagram API, sorry. So you can see here the, the part that they're highlighting is just this endpoint, users self-follows, users self-followed by. And sometimes this URL will actually have a parameter in it, which we'll talk about it next. Uh, but a lot of times this URL is used as the kind of title of your section. It's what groups things. You might have, you might have one resource that has a lot of different URLs that, that all access it. It sort of depends on your API. Here, for example, in the left column, you can see that they've got the endpoint, they call them endpoints, is relationships. But within relationships, they have multiple resource URLs. You've got the get users self follows, you've got the get users self followed by, and so forth. Um, this comes back to API design. How many different resource URLs do you have per you know, resource? You could have a lot, you could have one with a million options to configure it. On a source, from the source perspective of this, like when they have developed an API, mm -hmm. Is this a file structure, this path? I, I've never seen what it actually looks like from the, from the giving perspective. I've only seen it from this perspective. Wait, you're asking me what, what if... I don't structure anymore, but from, as when they create these resources, mm -hmm. what does that look like on their server? What do these resources look like on their server? Well. All of these, all of these resources are, are just accessed through that long URL. Uh, so, I don't know if I'm entirely understanding the question, but like from the the engineer side of how they create these resources, um, I don't know a lot about like the actual like if they have a, a database where this information is stored that then is like accessed through these different requests. I imagine there's a lot of different ways they could architect it. Um, you could, I'm pretty sure most people do put information in databases. Um, whether you could do it with flat files, I'm not really sure. Uh, there's a lot of different like database designs and so forth. All right, um, <clears throat> let me go to the next one. Oh, here's an example of a path parameter inside this resource URL. So whenever you have 
a parameter that's actually part of the path. In this example, this is from MailChimp when you're sending a campaign. You have to put a campaign ID in there. This, when you have a, a situation like this, um, the, this path parameter is always required. It can't be inserted in any order. And you usually want to try to set it off in a way that people can understand. There's, this, there's a possibility that somebody would get confused and think that they actually need curly braces around the campaign ID. So you want to make it clear that you know, the whole thing is just like a variable or a parameter. Okay, the, the method usually goes right with the resource URL. Um, you usually put it in full caps to the left or something. And this is like uh, get, post, put, delete. These are the operations that this request is using. The get is just getting information. So it's usually something, like if there's ever an API that doesn't have an API key, it probably only offers get requests to provide information. Post means you're actually creating something. Um, put means you're updating something that already exists. Uh, delete means you're removing something. And there's, there's some others, patch, and you saw that giant list in Postman with some more. Um, but these are the most common. Um, particularly with the post method, you're going to have more information that you're submitting. Because usually when you create some kind of resource, you have to configure it. Whereas if you're just getting it, you usually don't have a lot more about it. So here's an example. This is from MailChimp. And if you can't read these, um, by the way, if you want to like follow along on slides and so forth on your own computer, if you're back at the workshop activities under Intro to API Documentation, you just click that and then go out to, uh, I don't know, dash 10 or something. Um, so available methods here. OK, where was I? Oh, OK, the, on the left. Okay, on the left you can see that that is got they specify that these are get methods. But actually, let's go to this for example for a minute here. I should have this linked and I do not have this linked. Okay, fine. But if you were to go to this, you can see that they've organized their methods as they're calling them or their endpoints or their resource URLs in three different groups. You've got your read methods here. You've got your delete ones here, and you've got your action ones here, which would be something other than get or delete. It might be post or something else. So if you have a lot of different methods, you might have to think about how you want to organize them. Does it make sense to do something fancy with tabs that group them? Do you just have one method for the whole resource? You have 12. Um, but there's definitely a, an organizational question that you would, would decide. Um, but yeah, you want to, in general, the strategy is that you would group methods by similar operations, put all of your get methods for that resource together, all of your post methods together, um, and, and do what would make sense to your API. Okay, parameter section. This is where you define what the valid values are. These are options that you can use with the endpoint. This is like the way you configure the endpoint. There are four types of parameters. You've got a header parameter. These are parameters that are passed in the header part, like the key, the API key usually. A path parameter. This comes before 
Um, I, I showed that with the client ID. It comes before any kind of query string parameters. Query strings are what come after a question mark, and like question mark, filter equals, whatever, ampersand, and I'll show an example in a minute. And then the request body. So this is an important point that when you have a parameter section, you want to identify what kind of parameter each is. So here is an example. Um, this is with the box API. And here they've, they've defined that they have path parameters. Oh, did you want, somebody was going to lower the lights. Did you want to? I, I did. And, oh, and it, it's, it's too dark. Working, okay. And it's too dark. Oh, no, uh, well, we were trying to dim just the front. If you want, that might make it more readable. Uh, see, she knows what she's doing. This is her room, right? <laughs> Help? Yeah, thanks, thanks. Thank okay. <laughs> so, uh, so in this example, you've got path params. The, you know, you can be, you can abbreviate it, I guess. Uh, path parameters, and there are four of them. So these are going to appear right in the path. They're always going to be required. But they've listed them out as query parameters and body parameters. So you've got three different types of parameters that you're, that you're calling out. Um, that's why I thought this was a good example because it shows how to clearly distinguish the two. Um, this one is actually linked, so let's, let's go to it real quick. The box API is actually, I believe it's on a platform called readme.io. So uh, if we don't get into that later, this is what the stuff on README looks like. But here you, come on. Oh, it's still loading. Um, let's see if I can magnify that a bit. Or not. Redoc? I'm pretty sure this is on, oh, it could be, but I, I thought it was on um, README. Well, I know, but you can have any domain pointed to this third-party host. Doesn't necessarily indicate where it's hosted. All right, uh, where it's actually living. So here you've got kind of a better view here: path parameters, query parameters, and, and so forth. Um, in this example, they've integrated a try it feature, so you can you can put your own little ID, your own fields, and then you can click try it and execute the request and what happens is, is basically the same thing as Postman. It's going to make the request and return the response directly in the user interface, which is a cool feature. This is actually, I'm pretty sure this is a feature within README, uh, but a lot of other platforms offer this. I mean, it, you've got all the, the, the wiring to make it. It's not a hugely difficult thing. But here on the left, you can see that this files, file object resource has several different uh, endpoints and, or requests uh, that you can make around it, downloading, uploading, and so forth. Um, and so it, it, they organize it in a way that's very readable, but they group similar endpoints together and so forth. Just a note of interest, because I'm looking at my laptop, which is a PC, and the one in front of me. And when we opened it up, it, it has a panel showing the curl code. Ah, well, I've magnified it a bit. Oh, you've got it too, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I missed that. Sorry. So the responsive view. 
you know, it would take a, a lot of effort to build a site like this. Um, well, and I don't know why nothing is showing in my third pane, but it takes a lot of effort to build a site like this. And so if you have a, access to a platform like README, yeah, the suggest edits, uh, that's another README feature. They sort of build all this in. Um, that said, I don't want to sound like a, a, you know, a spokesman for README. I really did have somebody contact me for a job, and they told me their stuff was on README, and I was like, awesome choice. And they said, the first task of the API writer will be to get us off README. <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> it comes back to this, this point I was making yesterday. Um, developers want complete freedom to do what they want to do. And if your platform has restrictions, it frustrates them. They want to build it and do it themselves. So at least that was what I got. OK, uh, let's go to another example here. Now, when you have query string parameters, this is an example. Let's say that your endpoint was surf report, and then you had a path parameter of beach ID. After the question mark come the query string parameters. And here we have days equal three and units equal metric, metric and time equals 1,400 or something. They can be in any order. But you can't put the path parameter in any order. You couldn't put beach ID in any order. Um, so both of these would be equivalent. You could put time last or first and so forth. And when you have query string parameters, developers might be like, oh, this is a double, or this is a, a I don't know, 16 integer, you know, different type. Okay, there's lots of different data types for how, how data is specified in uh, more formal programming languages like Java. For example, this could be a float, a uh, double, and it, it, it determines how big it can be. Well, that kind of stuff um, might be specified in the documentation, but it's not really enforced in the, in the call. So if like a number, which is usually just how it's referred to, if the data, data type has constraints around it, you would document how big it could be, like your max and min for it. All right. Um, yeah, on the, on the data types, Typically, there's just four data types in, in the query string parameters. You've either got a string, which is some kind of alphanumeric uh, letter number, integer, a whole number, 1, 5, 20, a Boolean, true or false, or an object, which is a set of key value pairs. And beyond that, you don't have a lot of these more granular data types like you would in Java or something. The request body is often used for post requests, and, and it would usually be a, a JSON object. So and this, is, this is very common. You have a request, but then you also have to submit a request body in it. And, and you would define each of these uh, properties in the request body. Uh, the request example usually shows a sample request. Now, typically, because you can put a lot of different query string parameters in there, different values for the path parameters and so forth, the request example is a, a sample only. It's not going to show like every way that you could submit a request. But you usually have some kind of curl curl request. So for example, with uh, let's go to this one. This I believe this is the Twitter API. Um, oh, they can be very 
Wow. Very bare bones about their request example. Example request. Look at that. They just throw it right in there. Not even any fancy formatting. It's like, hey, this is what you could what you can 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 uh, submit, right? And then they show an example response, which is formatted a lot nicer. But here, you often put this sample request in curl just because it's a lot easier. Um, Here's another example. This one, now APIs vary so much. This one is from the New York Times. And here, they're a lot more interactive. You actually construct the whole request over here and it shows you uh, the response in real time. So like, you can, you can have these built-in API explorers um, and a lot of these platforms provide this. Uh, I think I'm gonna talk about this later. Uh, but basically, you can build Postman right into your, your interface. Not literally Postman, but something like it. Okay. Um, one thing to keep in mind if your company is hot to trot about having an API Explorer built into it is that you actually do submit real requests. So people often don't realize that they're like messing up their data, they're creating stuff that can't be deleted, they're um, ordering things. We had this, I once worked on this, this product at Amazon called Dash, which allows you to reorder supplies, right? And they had this API for it. And I'm like, this is great, this documentation, you know, you've got all the parts there, but where are the requests? And we need these. You can't have an API documentation reference topic and not show a sample request. And they're like, well, we don't really want people to make requests because they're, they're gonna be ordering stuff. They're, like, they're gonna actually be like ordering supplies. I'm like, really? You don't have a test system? So they eventually had to code in some kind of like <coughs> test flag so that we wouldn't actually order things. Um, but as I was using it, I still got like notifications that, I, that my thing was being shipped, but it would say test. Anyway, uh, it, was, like, it was an actual challenge, right? And so they had deliberately removed this because they didn't want people to actually make requests. And it's, quite a, it's very common that people um, don't plan for this scenario. Um, you, know, you, you really need to set up some kind of sandbox API for people so that when they are playing around with any kind of Explorer like this in the docs, they're not they're not creating stuff that they're gonna regret later. Hey Tom, can I pause for a second? Yeah. Real quick? I'm gonna um, send around a order form for lunch. Oh, so nice. I'm gonna start it up here and I'll end with you, Tom. Okay. <coughs> and if you have any special requests or anything, write it on there. We're getting Jimmy John's because it's easy, fast. All right. Sweet. All right. The another part that is a core component of reference docs is the response example. So just as the request is just a sample of what you, what you might request, the response is also a sample. Because remember, you, if you have different parameters, you're going to get different responses. And so uh, one parameter that says, hey, I want the format in JSON, will have a different response than one that says, I want the format in XML. You don't have to show like 15 different responses, right? You just give an example. Um, and I'll talk more about, this is actually probably the most important part. Um, and the open API spec has a lot to say about this, but in short, throw an example in here. And here's an uh, example from, man, I put these together and then I've forgotten where some of these are. I thought I already showed that, so I was confused why I would show it twice. Okay, yeah, this, this shows the, this one is really worth checking out, by the way. Let's just. Let's just browse this one. <coughs> okay, 
um, article search in the New York Times. Love this. It shows you, there's really not a whole lot here, but in terms of configuring this. But the, I believe this API Explorer is going to pass in some of these parameters into the request. But let's say we want to search for, uh, oh, I don't even know what I was, uh, technology. I, don't, I didn't want to say any topics. Um, <coughs> and nothing. OK. Oh, try it out. Sorry. And now it wants an API key. OK. All right. I thought it didn't require an API key, and I don't want to populate it. So sorry. But you can see how once you, once you plug in an API key into this thing, you can really start to see the, the requests in a, in a fun way. Can you just divert for a minute and talk yeah. about the API key? It's obviously something special that only special people get, and its function is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, f the function of an API key is to authorize people. Every API, with the ex very few exceptions, will require this. It is criteria that people use to issue the API key? Yeah, yeah. You, every, okay, so the, the API company, the company who has the API wants to, first of all, monetize it and make sure that only certain people are making requests. They often have a free tier and then a paid tier. But let's say that the New York Times gives me an API key and I decide to build a whole new site and I'm making like thousands of requests per minute. And they say, whoa, the, the traffic spike from you is uh, way more than what we signed up for. We're going to shut you off. They just turn off my API key and all of a sudden my requests die. Uh, I worked at a gamification company once and people implemented certain requests incorrectly so that every time like uh, something was happening it was calling constantly to get information and uh, it was like crashing servers. So they just turned off the person's API key. But also it's a way to um, add pricing. It, they often say, for example, with the Aris Weather API, you can make 750 requests per day for free, but then after that, it's like tiered. Um, and if you I think, I, I, yeah. I, I get the yeah, yeah, it, it's sort of essential. Um, I believe I cover that somewhere else, so I've got so many different things floating in my head, I can't remember where, but uh, it is a, a super important part. In almost any API, they have different ways of doing this. Ah, okay, now I remember. We're, we're going to dive more into this in the non-reference topics part, the authorization. Uh, so we'll get into more detail. But the API key is just one, one way. There's lots of different ways, OAuth and um, some other samples. OK. Probably the most difficult part of documenting the response is figuring out how to document nested objects. Uh, because when you, when you try to describe a response, you don't just have, you don't just have um, a straight list of key value pairs. You have, for example, values inside of an object. And you may, these values may repeat for the same object. Or you may have you know, three levels of nesting. How do, you, how do you describe that? For example, given name. How do I describe that? Do I do a table with name details and the second column is given name? Uh, or what happens when you have like you know five levels of nesting? Well, the table is not going to work. So there's lots of different strategies people try to use. And I'll talk about one that works well with, with the swagger. But it's definitely a challenge, like the formatting. Um, one very common design is this little tripane design. This was made famous by the Stripe API, which uh, some people 
like to hold up as like the perfect example and others are like, eh, it's not so great. I'm not a fan of the tripane API or the tripane design. You'll see this in other, other tools. We saw it in README. There's a free one called Slate that mimics it. The idea is that over here on the right, we're going to have a sample response. And in the middle column, we'll define all this stuff. So let's, for example, object, or no, let's look at a real one, amount, a positive integer, blah, blah, blah. Um, over here on the right, I could see this in context and see, oh, this appears as kind of a first level. But if I come down to uh, another sort of section in here, um, I don't have to try to nest all of these. Like, these might indicate a parent, but you can see that we haven't tried to do any kind of crazy table columning. columning. So that, I think that's what this design is trying to accomplish, is showing in context to something and then just showing a table of definitions. Okay, so the indentation indicates the nesting. Okay. I, I would need to look and see. Let's look at a, here's, here's the problem I have with these. Um, there's no clear focus for the eye, so I don't know exactly where I'm supposed to be looking, right? But they also don't always track, like the two in sync. For example, if I want to know currency, it's not right here. It's, where is it? You know, it's somewhere over here. And now they don't, they're no longer in sync. Now it's like one thing's defined here, but it's shown here. And then it becomes more complicated than helpful. Uh, and this is even, this is actually showing the request, not even the response, I believe. So, um, I, I don't believe they do. Oh, they, they have implemented show child attributes, so maybe that's why I'm not seeing something. So they, they do have some, some uh, JavaScript going on here to try to make this more navigable. navigable. But you can see how this, this is a challenge in documentation, how you, how you do this. I think I've seen one implementation, but I can't remember the site, where when you clicked on the attributes, it would highlight it in the, the right panel. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen that before too, and I captured it somewhere. Um, the more, the fancier implementations tend to have some custom coding. Um, I'm a fan, uh, somewhat, of Swagger UI's attempt to do it, and I'll jump into it later, where they, they actually will show a definition in with uh, the, the uh, context of it in the same, same little space. All right, status and error codes. These are something that uh, you might have specific ones related to a particular endpoint. Uh, but if they're the same for your whole API, you can put them in another section. Uh, you can put them in kind of the non-reference section or uh, as a standalone page. But when you submit a, a request, if it's successful, you actually get back a status code that's like a 200. These are, these are defined in the header, so you don't often see them. But if I were to... Uh, let me see if I can do a quick example here. Uh, if I go into curl and clear this. Uh, I think it was capital I to include the header. Oh, man. Yeah, okay. So capital I says I only want the header now that I remember that. So you can see if you submit a request, um, this status code is returned. Sorry, I didn't ignore that upper part. This status code is returned. That, those status codes are common for every 
type of um, API, every type of request. And it turns out there's lots of different status codes. There's even a fun status code in the Twitter API called Enhance Your Calm. It's a 420 status code. Um, <laughs> but the status codes actually have a rhyme and reason to their, their, their ordering. So uh, 400s are usually problem areas, 200s might be more successful and so forth. Uh, but if you, if you really want to get into status codes, uh, there's a whole Wikipedia page that has like all these standard status codes. Um, for example, and developers don't often just make these up, right? You can't just decide, oh, I'm going to call my status code 204. No, that actually means something. That's a standard. It means no content. But your, your company might have specific status codes like, hey, limit has been exceeded or maybe you have like uh, sometimes they put secret information in status codes and like nobody understands what the status code is because it's a cryptic abbreviation and anyway uh, something that you would include okay here's an example from the Flickr API if we go to this you can see their their status codes they decide to put them right there at the bottom hey, uh, 100 is an invalid API key and so forth. Uh, but again, if these are common to all the different endpoints, I recommend just like linking to a page. And if you wanted to go the extra mile, your, your error codes could map to some kind of troubleshooting topic. Hey, you have a bad parameter. Here's a list of possible things you did wrong. All right, and finally, you might have some code samples on the page. This is probably something you'll see in the Aris Weather API where you've got so many different configurations and possibilities. Well, let's show uh, some more code samples in context, maybe, maybe even a JavaScript implementation of it. You know. All right, so uh, yeah, uh, and, and you might want to show requests in a bunch of different languages. It, it just depends. All right, let's jump here. In my course, I, I go through a sample, a sample um, endpoint that we're making up for a, a surf report, for example. So let's say that we started with our MashApe weather API and we just had weather and weather data, but now we want to show like surf conditions. Well, here could be a sample documentation that would show this. Um, you start out defining it or describing what the resource is. You list the endpoints, the methods, uh, maybe it has a path parameter. You have a parameter section that has your path parameters, your query string parameters, and they're each defined. You indicate whether they're required or optional. The data types, this is an integer or string. Uh, you have a sample request, often in curl. You have a sample response, and then you, know, you, you don't just leave the sample response. People may, may look at it and say, uh, well, this is pretty obvious, but what is tied? What does negative one mean in tied or something? You go through and you define each of these, um, implement whatever technique you want to show nesting, uh, and maybe add some other notes or so forth. So that's essentially what the shape of API reference information looks like, these different sections. Um, any questions, thoughts, concerns? Okay. All right, now we are pretty much done with that section. And we'll move on to the next part, which is going to be the Swagger and the Open API part. One question. Yeah. Why did you shave? Why did I shave? <laughs> <laughs> it looks good on you. 
With, 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 really? My mom, my mother told me, she said, Tom, you look <laughs> foolish. And I was like, ah, it's itchy too. I, I was growing, a, uh, I was growing facial hair as an act of rebellion. So I was no more, no longer rebelling. Okay. All right. Um, so yeah, anyway, let's come back to the workshop activities page. And uh, I think I have, let me see if I have an activity around this that I've forgotten. Let me see. All right, we've done Postman stuff. We have a lot of activities with the open API and, and so forth. So I, yeah, we did mostly what I wanted to do here. Um, so let's see, do, I guess we just took a break. So let's not take a break. Let's just keep going here. Unless you want a break. Do you want a break or not? We sort of just took one. Okay. If you go back to the workshop activities page, go to uh, learn, API doc, or learn API doc and activities. We're in part two. You can click the slides and open up the slides. Because I realize, you know, it's sometimes hard to see. And every time I magnify it, it like, you know, goes into responsive view and stuff. Um, here we're going to talk, this is, this is getting into the fun stuff. This is like, this is real, where the rubber meets the road. And I love this stuff actually. Um, because this is, this is an area where so many people are, are clueless. Developers, product managers, and there's massive sort of conceptual stuff happening in this space. This open API thing is really somewhat revolutionary. So we're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about Swagger, what you do with them. Um, and all of this stuff that we just shared about uh, these essential sections that you have to document, you don't have to think, well, what template will I use and how will I ensure I get each section and every, no, you don't have to worry about that. Because you're going you're gonna to describe all of that in the context of the OpenAPI's definitions. Um, it, of course, not everybody uses this, right? Probably only a third of APIs will have this that I've seen, um, but I think all should have it. Uh, so I think it's it's a best practice. It's also a best practice because um, it provides. There's a, so many benefits around standards. When you have everybody doing things their way, they have they choose their own terminology, they choose their own format. It's unpredictable, and and it's it's hard too. They they often forget parts. Uh, having this specification will give people kind of a form to fill out almost. Okay. Um, and again, this part is also, it, 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 there's a lot more detail in my course. I'm not going to go through really specifically all the different like parts of the spec because it can be very technical. But I'm going to give a high level view of how you put it together. And and let me start by telling a story of, of exactly what engineers want and how I got into this path. Um, I was working at this company uh, in San Jose, and we had a new API. And the product manager developed a very careful PowerPoint detailing, these are the new endpoints, and these are the responses. And he had actually copied, it was a team, he and she had actually copied the code samples onto these static slides. And they had a presentation that they gave to field engineers and said, here's what you can now submit, and this is what comes back, and this, and so forth. 
And the field engineers were kind of bored by it. They were like, uh, okay, um, as soon as they could ask a question, the first thing they asked was, can we try it out? Can we see it? Can we really see that, that response returned? Um, I don't know if they were doubtful or skeptical about some things or if some things weren't clarified, but they definitely wanted to try it out. And from this, I, I it reinforced the idea that engineers, they don't like static presentations. They want hands-on interactive experiences. Um, I once had a neighbor who, uh, he was a mechanical engineer. He needed to fix his car. You know, rather than taking it into the shop, he disassembled like three-fourths of the engine to replace the head gasket, had all the pieces around this whole garage, whereas for me, that would be a nightmare. He loved it. He liked to get his hands on in the code. And I think engineers, software engineers, are the same way. They like to see all the pieces play around with them. So how do you deliver uh, this interactivity in docs where people can try things out, they can make these requests, get the responses, because you don't want to have just static docs. You want to have these API explorers built into the docs where people click stuff, they see the response. Because um, when you are working with the REST client with Postman, it's probably a lot more fun clicking and seeing stuff than it was just listening to kind of me explain every section, right, as a lecture. Um, it's, it's how people learn. Uh, if you think about complex scenarios, you can't describe them in totality because there's so many permutations, different combinations, different scenarios. People need a, a simulation that they can use to try out different things. What happens if I do this or that? And what's the response? You can't describe that all. You need some kind of interactivity with this. How are you going to build that, right? This is not something you just have to say, well, I got to sign up for a platform that offers it, like README. No, you can get this interactivity for free uh, through, through Swagger and the OpenAPI. Let's do a quick demo. Uh, this is the Pet Store API. So go to, go ahead and open up your browser, go to petstore.swagger.io uh, or search for Swagger Pet Store, one of the two. Yep, you got it, you got it. Now this is, uh, let me clarify terms first. A lot of people know the term Swagger. It was initially developed by a specific company, Reverb, uh, and later purchased by SmartBear, I believe. Um, but at some point, people said, we need an open standard. We don't want to have a, a, a name that sounds proprietary or tied to a specific vendor. So let's rename Swagger to OpenAPI and reinforce the fact that it's a vendor-neutral open format. Um, and so, oh, thanks. So at some point, they said, OK, uh, everybody who was calling the Swagger spec now call it OpenAPI. Well, like, Half of, the, half of the web listened and the other half just still calls it Swagger. Um, wow, uh, two, I can't do this while I'm talking at the same time. Can somebody, let me see, oh, number four, number four. Oh, I see, let me just put this down. All right, there we go. Anyway, so are you all here at Swagger Pet Store? Because this is a fun API. This is like a demonstration of an API. And, and this framework here is called Swagger UI. It's a project that you can download. And it is reading a definition that is stored here. If you go to this, go ahead and copy this and paste it into a new tab. And you will see that this is the open API definition for this, 
for this API. Pet store, there's not a real pet store API. Like it is an API, but it's it's a fake one, right? You're not actually like creating pets and so forth. Um, so the Swagger UI, you can paste any any URL here. Actually, uh, this is kind of crazy. Uh, for example, if if you are on my site in the Learn API doc, I've got a demo of a different API. Um, Oops, not there. Uh, Swagger UI demo. <clears throat> and so here is the same same definition, or same same kind of framework, right? Let's say that I wanted to instead paste in a different definition here. You can do that. Click Explore, and bam, it like loads that definition. It's kind of a, a, a really cool framework. At any rate, um, here's how it works. So you you come down here to one of these endpoints. Let's add it, a pet to the pet store. Expand post. Uh, this is a post method to create a pet or to add a pet. And there are two sections here, model and example value. So the model is the description of each of the elements of it. And theoretically, if they actually had described it, you could read about each of them. But they, they didn't. They just kind of provided the data types. I'll come back to this later. But uh, click Try It Out. Um, change the ID to like some whole number. Don't start with zero. Pick a unique number uh, that nobody else is going to pick. Um, change the name of, the name of Little Doggy to like um, any particular name you want. I'll call this JSON Doggy, whatever. Remember your ID too. Wait, wait, where do you put the name under quantity two things down? Uh, sorry, the name replace doggy with something specific and replace the first ID with a different number. Uh, just no, no. Expand pet here because this is this is a fun part. Expand pet. I did expand. And you don't see exam. Oh, sorry. Then click try it out. Yeah. And then this this field becomes editable. I, I, I hear desperation or exhaustion. <laughs> um, all right, five, five, remember your number and click execute. And you'll see it submits the same request through curl and it shows you the response, the response body. It shows that, uh, it sh even shows the headers and so forth. So you've actually added a pet here. And if you were co to come down to uh, find pet by ID or get pet by ID, click try it out paste in your, your pet ID, you will see that it returns your pet. Here's the JSON doggy. All right, so try that. See if you can create a pet and get your pet that you created using the Swagger UI. I found the right place, but I don't find doggy. Enter the right information, and now what do I press to get it? Did you? Oh, execute. Yeah, execute, yeah. <clears throat> Which ID field Try the first one, the first one, and don't start with zero. If you if it worked correctly, your response should show uh, something, um, and then in the get method, the get pet by ID method, you should be able to re you should be able to retrieve the pet you created if you successfully created. Yeah. Yep. Try it out and then click execute. 
This particular API lets you choose what kind of response format you want. So if you want, I think by default it's XML, but you can choose JSON and it will return in JSON. Yep, 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 right in, right in the example value. Yeah, it's a little, a little, a little unintuitive that way, but... Choose something a little more unique. <laughs> but yeah, and then change the name in the second part there where it says name doggy. Change that to something that you'll be able to recognize. And yeah. Yep. Get pet by ID or get. Yep. You might have to click try it out again. I'm not sure. Um. Did you get your pet? <laughs> okay. Okay. Anybody else uh, <coughs> still working on it? You got 405? Hmm. You got two, 200 is good. 200 is what you want. I don't know why. Um. <laughs> okay. So the idea with with Swagger is that you are combining you're combining experiential learning with documentation. Documentation is no longer just a static reading activity. You're actually trying it out. So it's like the best of e-learning and the best of documentation merged together in one world. And that's why it's so popular. So yeah. Is uh, so like Postman and uh, Swagger, I guess. Swagger is similar to Postman, except for the ads documentation standards. Yeah, yeah. Swagger is pretty similar to Postman, but it adds documentation to it, and uh, you can embed it right on a web page. Whereas Postman is this downloadable client, right? It's not something that you just embed in a page, really. Um, okay. So, all right. So you've done that. Now let's move on to the Open API specification. Right, um, because we, we briefly mentioned that at the top there was this thing in JSON uh, and we opened it up and it looked like this, this open API specification and it defines all these different values but we didn't talk about them. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. The basic idea is that if you are able to describe APIs in a consistent way then we can build a lot of machines that can process that description and do cool things with it. Uh, for example, Swagger UI is one, but there are probably 20 different platforms that can read this structured description uh, and do cool things with it. Um, 
essentially this is structured authoring, right? It's not just free form, choose your own templates. It's structured authoring. It's not XML, but it is a structure that's machine proce processable, proce uh, can be machine processed. There are two versions of the open API definition or spec. One is 2.0, and if you look at this Swagger example, you'll see at the top that it's 2.0. <coughs> it's actually not the latest. The latest is 3.0, uh, but 95% of the tooling out there only supports 2.0, so you might have to convert between the two. If you're learning the spec, I recommend learning the 3.0 and then using a site called API Transformer to transform your 2.0 into a 3.0, or 3.0 into a 2.0. Uh, but uh, let me just call out here, API-matic has a really nifty transform tool. You can plug in anything and get a lot of different outputs. Um, you plug in your open API 3.0, does it even, yeah, open API spec 3.0 and generate out the Swagger 2.0 or something, or open API 2.0. They're mixing the terms here. They're not really called Swagger anymore. So then uh, this is a free tool. And they also have a bunch of other stuff on their platform. They would love to host docs and do other things. Uh, so you can, you can do more with that, but I'm not going to jump into that. Um, the open API spec has these core objects. These are all objects defined in JSON. But if you don't want to write in JSON, you can write in a format called YAML. YAML stands for, does anybody know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a reverse acronym. It stands, I think, if that's right, it stands for YAML ain't no markup language. So it's like it contains its own acronym in the definition. We're, anyway, uh, a markup language typically has angle brackets that, that identify things, particularly, particularly XML. Uh, but that becomes very unreadable. So people develop this format that, hey, we're just going to make things, um, we're going to make things space sensitive and like two spaces is a new level and that is more readable and so forth. Anyway, it's another format that you can use. Most people write it in YAML, but it's really a subset of JSON. If you ever need to convert between YAML and JSON, you just Google convert JSON to YAML. There's a converter, you paste it in, they're interchangeable. Um, but anyway, they've got these eight objects. And I'm not going to go through them meticulously here. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> making sure I didn't have anything planned for that. Because this is where it gets very tedious and very technical. Um, and I think there's a better way as well. But basically, um, the open API specifies what version you're validating against, because this whole spec is validated. Uh, the info defines general properties about like whether there's a link to documentation externally and other uh, information about the, the API, its description. Servers defines like the request URL, the base path. Um, your paths are all your endpoints and, and this is the, the core of it right here, the paths. You define the endpoints and then you've got below that the uh, operation, the get, or the post, and then the parameters, and so forth, um, and whether they're required. Components allows you to reuse stuff. So let's say you have 30 different endpoints, and you've got very you've got common 
commonly used content across them all? Well, you can store those in components and then just reference them and it reuses them. So it's nifty. I mean, we're all about content reuse, right? Um, security is where this defines the method used to authorize the requests. So it could be OAuth, it could be the API key, it could be basic uh, key. Tags, these are, this is very simple. This uh, is just a way of sorting all the endpoints. Let's say you have the 30 different endpoints and you've got some related to um, games and some related to groups or something. You can tag them with these and then in the Swagger display, it's going to sort them. So these are all tagged with pet. These are all tagged with store. These are tagged with user. So it's just a way of grouping things. This models part here, Honestly, I don't know why they include it, but this is the components part that reuses uh, parts of it anyway. Uh, you can just hide that, I think, it's better. And finally, external docs is a simple uh, object that contains a link to other documentation outside of it. Tom, can yeah. I ask a question? God, I was out, so you might already No, probably not. This, but is this, are these parameters unique to a specific version of the spec? Or yeah, this is, this is, are these parameters unique to this version? Yeah, these, these are unique to the 3.0 version. Okay. Um, the 2.0 are highly similar, but 2.0, for example, will say definitions, I believe, instead of components, and the 3.0 tries to improve on a number of things. Um, pretty much most people can, ex can describe APIs similarly uh, using the 2.0, but 3.0 does have some features. For example, um, let's say one of the, re the responses, no, let's say your request format can be any of several types of a JSON body. Like you could have a JSON body that looks like this format or it can look like that format or this format. Well, that's called an any of JSON schema and that's only supported in 3.0. So things like that, um, probably not that common. When you start to work with this, you will become familiar with the specification documentation, which is on GitHub. And if you go here to OpenAPI specification, uh, you'll see a link here that says current version 3.0.1. And this documentation is um, thorough. It's exact. It's not very user friendly. Uh, so it's all on one page. Apparently there was, you know, I, I, I once made a criticism on their Google group. I said, why don't you break this up? You know, this is, this is crazy. You've got just like this huge page. It would be a lot more, you know, uh, it would be easier to navigate this if you like put each object on its own page. And they're like, no, the developers want the, the simple control find and I find it right on the page because you're moving up and down. And, and it's like, oh, I, I kind of see the logic to that using it. So. Um, I'm sure they would love it if somebody came along and said, you should really do the doc like this and here's an example, but uh, they don't. There's, there's another, another uh, reference, a tutorial on Swagger's site as well uh, that, that gives more of a human uh, tutorial. Uh, but but this, this contains the bulk of what you need to know and you'll use this. But basically, here's how you use this documentation. You've got these eight different objects and let's say you are trying to figure out what to put in the info object. Well, the info object contains these properties. 
title, description. And here's a sample in JSON or YAML, depending upon which one you prefer. It always lists them both. But you can see that it's got, okay, a contact, and it's below this, indented twice is name. This means that name is an object inside of contact. So you've got an object inside of an object. Anyway, uh, when you're working with this, if you have even one space out of place, it won't validate. So super, super picky. Um, all right, and, and this is probably the simplest one. The path one is a lot harder. Let me just call attention to one part of my site where I tried, I tried to make this easy. Um, I've got a tutorial here that walks you through each of these steps. So you would start out, the, the open API object is the, the simplest one. You just, um, where is it? It's basically that. That's all it is. It's nothing really. Uh, but I walk you through each of these sections. So you start out by, you know, if you wanted to code this by hand, you start out with the open API object. You're going to add the info object, you know, probably, probably just copy and paste this into a text file, into a, an editor that I'll, I'll explain in a minute. The server's object, again, very simple. Then we get into the paths object. You start out by defining, and again, you're not going to take this in right you know, here, you, you will learn this uh, when you actually have an API you're documenting. But it, this defines the different endpoints and then the methods below it. Then you add more to it. There's all these properties that, that each uh, operation object, as it's called right here, can have, right? So you kind of add these. Um, and then you go through and you figure out what properties, well, here I, I took half of them away because they're uh, unnecessary for this example. And then each of these parameter, like each of these things has its own object. So this is probably the most complicated part of it is you've got, you've got the path object, the operation object, which can have various properties, and then each of these can have its own properties. And it all has to be meticulously defined and validated in order to work. So um, you can code things by hand, and you'll become a power player. But then if you don't document an API for six months, you might forget it all, right? So it's kind of frustrating. And um, part of the problem is that treating the, the, the spec like this, it's usually an afterthought to the design. Like the API has already been designed, and here I'm just like describing it using this really complex format. And it's not really the intent of this design. Uh, what, what people, or it's not the intent of the open API spec. What people intend with the open API spec is that you will model and create a prototype of what your API should look like. And then people test it against users. And then when everybody's agreed to it and you've got it all described in the open API, then you hand it to developers and say, okay, code this. Um, because the problem is that the problem is that people say, we need an API, this is what it should do. A product manager writes some document, some requirements in Word. Developers go to town and they, f they make guesses for things that are not defined or specified. And they're like, here we are, here's the API. And you put it in front of users and they say, this is unusable. This is so crazy, you know, these definitions are the same and this doesn't make any sense. And then they're like, crap, we should have designed it better. We should have done more testing. And you've wasted all this time, but you've already committed to ship dates. So you ship it, and then you have to start versioning it. 
And when you have a version two, suddenly things become more complex because you've got to still support version one. And so you, it's very, it, agile does not work well with, with API documentation. You can't just constantly iterate and change things because developers have already integrated this stuff in their applications. So you have to continue to support it. That's why there's this huge effort towards spec first development. You want to get the spec developed first and, and tested and kind of agreed on before you code it so that you don't have version one, version two, version three. Because the versioning thing is a nightmare. Okay, questions, thoughts, comments? Yeah. Oh, that's a good example. So let me just summarize it. For like. So you've got an example where developers for two years are kind of just modeling things uh, before they actually code them. That's, that's kind of an, an extreme. The, the challenge is that um, there's a lot of negativity towards waterfall, right? It's like antiquated. And people say, well, isn't this just waterfall? Well, not really. This is the defense, is that you've, once, you've once you've got this open API specification, you start, you start doing agile development on this spec with your tests. You test it, you make changes, you test it, you make changes, and then once you've got it to a point where it's good, then you code it. Um, all right, so now we're going to get into, yeah. So the company that I work for does create their APIs in Swagger. Yeah. Okay. They don't want, they don't want, the tech writers to use the YAML editor because they can't see what we're changing. So if we, if they give us the JSON file, we import it into the YAML, we make changes, export it out, they then add that back to Swagger and can't see what we've done. So what we are doing is we are writing and defining all of the field descriptions, all of the parameters, all of that hmm. outside of Swagger, and then somebody has to manually put that back in. Is there a better way to do that? And if uh, this class is not a way to let, discuss it? Let me, let me back up a little bit and address your question. So, okay, so first, you're saying that in your particular company, people uh, want you to somehow take your descriptions and your content and port it back into Swagger. Yes. Right, so there are two, I, I didn't really explain this part um, because there's a confusion of terminology that, that I need to clarify. You don't have to hand code this definition, like uh, this, this thing here, right? You don't have to hand code this. Developers, can put certain annotations in their code, similar to Javadocs annotations, 
Uh, there's different libraries that have different like syntax for the annotations that they will put in depending upon whether they're working in Java or something else. And then they can run this library and, and generate out the file. So they can generate this file from the code. Right. Uh, and that's how some developers like to do it because they're used to documenting code in, in code with annotations. Uh, and I'm guessing that's what you mean when, when you're being asked, how do we get your edits back into the code annotations where the swagger is being defined by developers? Um, what we do is yeah. I literally write this documentation in a Word file or yeah. a, um, a XLS file, yeah. and give it to them, and they then put it into their swag. So you write it in a separate separate document and they pull it in there. What okay, so if your company embraces that, let's say you want engineers to write and uh, they're not writing, they're just copying and pasting my oh. stuff then I, w I would, if, if I were you, see if you could get access to their source code to make those edits yourself. Um, Maybe I'll talk about this later, maybe if we have time, but basically I would say try to get them to give you access to a specific branch. Make a branch of the code. That's a copy of it. You're not going to screw anything up. You go into the branch. You make these edits using whatever annotations uh, are correct. Like look at other examples of how the things are annotated in their code, the parameters and so forth. Um, make your edits in that branch push your branch and say, okay, you can merge this branch back into your main master. And they will see if like it breaks anything. Um, but you don't want to, well, you really want to be working close to that source and not, not be dependent on, on them to do it. And really, um, if all you're doing is pasting it back into there, there's really no value in keeping it there. Like, in some ways, I, I, hate, I hate it when developers do it like this because it takes it out of the tech writer's realm for the most part. Uh, there, it, it, there's no advantage to having, I mean, it seems like extra work if they have to copy your content back into there. All they're doing is automating the formatting of this thing. Well, the reason they do that is because then it is extracted to our website. Why couldn't you just produce the, the, the JSON or YAML uh, open API definition and push that into your website separately? Like, is it part of some big, large release process? If so, you know, you may have requirements, you may have to work through them, but. Um, well, like I said, I didn't want to ask if there was an easier way than that manual process uh, that we go through. It, yeah. Um, I, think, I think the better way is to, is to not try to generate them from code. Um, but. But then again, it's easy to sit here and say that <laughs> rather than be within the constraints. Yeah. The, the better way is, is just probably for you to get access to the code and put them in yourself and manage it in a branch. That way you have more control. A lot of times they may be like, oh, we're not going to give it anybody access to this. And you may need all kinds of tools to even get in, get set up. But that would be ideal. All right. Um, let me move into, uh, I, saw, I thought I heard something there, but let's move into one of these activities, workshop activities, come back to where we are here. Um, we are going to do Swagger Editor. So if you jump down to Swagger Editor activity, 
Swagger Editor is where you could, if you're hand coding this thing, you'll probably want to work on there. Oh crap. Okay. Let me. Uh, Okay. So if you just search for Swagger Editor, you've got access to it. All right. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, let me come back to something. Where am I? All right. Pa paste in this YAML file into the Swagger Editor. So I've got a YAML file that's already got a sample definition. So what you're going to do is click this. And it opens up into a sample weather API. I went through the, that sample simple toy API from Mashape and documented it using this Swagger definition. You can see that actually one of these endpoints that's super long is the bulk of it. Uh, uh, but go ahead and copy this. Go back to the Swagger editor that you're in. Okay, and you're going to paste it into the Swagger editor, editor.swagger.io. All right, and it should validate. So tell me if you've gotten this far. Yes. Okay, now this updates in real time, and it's, it's a pretty handy editor. It's, it's, I mean, the error messages aren't so great, but it's quite, quite a nifty thing. So go ahead and change some aspects of something, maybe in the, the top definition. Um, this is a sample. And you can see that it's automatically adding that over to the right. So if you're hand coding this thing, what I like to do, and I know this sounds pathetic, but if you start from an API that's already valid, and then you replace it little by little <laughs> with your own custom, code that actually works pretty well. Um, or or you, you, you go piece by piece building it up and making sure it's valid, valid along the way. What can be difficult is if you uh, already have the whole thing coded and you put it in here and you're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't valid and this isn't valid here because it, it only, like the validator reads down to the place where it's not valid and so you might fix it and it doesn't read the whole thing. But go ahead and do something that makes it unvalid. For example, I'm going to type um, something like that there. Oh, that was interesting. That didn't actually break it. Let me, let me do something in the path, OK? Um, so in the AQI path, I typed something for get so that it wasn't wasn't there, and now you can see that it doesn't even display this AQI. Usually it throws an error message, so um, maybe it, maybe I didn't do a big enough uh, error. But if you do a syntax error like this, you can see on the side it's like bad indentation of a mapping entry, and um, this is quite common. You know, if you if you have things that aren't indented correctly, it's going to throw up errors and and basically you would have to fix them to make sure that things are working working right. Uh, it can be kind of frustrating and tedious getting everything right and you'll consult the spec and be like, oh, this is supposed to be indented or this is the name of the property. But by looking at lots of examples and going piece by piece, you can, you can do this, All right? Um, 
This Swagger editor will show either 3.0 or 2.0. You notice at the top we've got 3.0 pasted. And you can, you can save the file. You can do what you want. Now, if, uh, if you wanted to use this in a more commercial way, the product that they have from, from Swagger is one called Swagger Hub. So just to let you know like what is available at, a, at the commercial level, which is not much, but um, this same weather API here, uh, it's using the same Swagger editor. Right? So if you go to Swagger Hub, you'll see, oh, it's the same editor, but it's got like some, some extra features. And if you were to go and look at this API from an end user's perspective, You'll see that up on the right, you have these same buttons. Um, you can download the code in all these different languages. Uh, the, uh, you can create these client SDKs to download the code for use in these different languages. So this is super helpful. You can auto-generate these SDKs. Um, and they may not be perfect, but uh, they can get people started in, in whatever language they want. For example, let's say you've got a, uh, a Go application. Right? You can download a Go SDK just from your definition. Um, all right, now I want you to, uh, okay, we're going to do our own Swagger UI using uh, a YAML file. So go to this activity number two, Swagger UI, and open up and download the Swagger UI project. Go over here to where it says clone download and click download zip. All right. Tell me, let me go piece by piece through here so we don't lose anybody. Tell me if you've got to this page and you've downloaded this okay. Swagger zip. Yeah. Okay. Go back and do it one more time for me. Okay. I'll watch very carefully. Um, <laughs> are you at Swagger UI right here? I'm not. Google Swagger UI GitHub. Oh, or wait, I probably had a link right here. Yeah, sorry, I had a link right here. On the activity swagger. Okay, I'll go back there now. Don't I have to look down and then okay. down up. Okay, so I'm in activity swagger. Good. Click download swagger, open it up on a new page. Over here there's a green button. Okay, I'm not there. I'm at part two okay. open uh, and API and swagger. Uh yeah, scroll down a little bit more to activity colon swagger UI. Got it. And download Swagger yeah. UI. Now, click the green button here once you're on the Swagger UI download. Yeah, and then choose Download Zip. Wherever it uh, lands is fine. You're going to open it up, uncompress it, and inside there's a folder called Dist, for short for distribution. Copy that folder. You can ignore everything else in there. Paste it somewhere convenient, like. Uh, I'm going to put mine under workshop exercise right here. All right, so you've got the dist folder. Dist folder, so you could leave it in the download actually, it's just you have a lot of other clutter. Now, this is, this is the built version of Swagger UI, open source that you could incorporate anywhere. You put it behind a firewall, whatever. If you, uh, Chrome blocks this for some reason. So this is why I said open this in Firefox if you were looking at a 
things to download. So it might work in Safari, I'm not really sure, but if you have Firefox, go and open this file, the index file in Firefox. Can I just do that? Yeah, all right. So Firefox won't block the JavaScript locally. Uh, of course, if it's on the web, Chrome looks at it fine. Uh, it's just locally that Chrome has like some kind of security things that block it. But you should see this thing locally. So tell me if you've got this open on Firefox or some other browser um, and are viewing it. Okay, and then now one more step. Open index.html in a text editor. So Sublime or Atom, whatever you want. Uh, actually, let me clear that away. You're gonna go into the dist folder and open the index file, index.html. So if you were a power developer, you could go in and change other kind of things and then recompile it. Maybe there's a make file, I'm not even sure. Uh, but if you just want to use Swagger how it is, um, you know, you, you can and you don't have to go through all that. You just grab what's in the disk folder. And in this index file, it's very, very brief, um, there's a URL parameter here. Look for URL colon and you'll see that it references the JSON schema. So in order to customize this with your own um, OpenAPI schema, sorry, OpenAPI definition file, all you have to do is replace this with a reference to your file. And it's that, it's that simple, really. So let's find, let me come back to uh, the class exercises. Uh, right here where it says, save this file locally, Right, this is that open API definition. Right, uh, open it up or right click, save as, and save it in that same dist folder. All right, so I'm just saving my, my YAML file in the dist folder. Okay, I'm gonna come back into the URL here and my file that I saved here and downloaded is called open API underscore weather dot YML. Sorry, probably, it's probably way too small to see. Open API weather dot YAML. Alright, now I come back into Firefox, refresh, and voila, I've got my own definition loaded. Sorry, can you show us again which element it is that we're editing? Yeah. You're just editing the URL element. And you can put a, a relative reference if you know, you could put the full path if you don't have this file downloaded, but typically you would download it. Yeah, so I'll give you a few minutes to get that get that sorted out. I mean, this is this is probably probably the simplest way to deliver your Open API file. So the URL element is on line thirty-four. Uh, no. Whoa, um, uh, it, yeah, seven, 77, um, trying to see where you're seeing line 34, but. And we should just, uh, 
does change the last. You see, you're gonna you're gonna replace the pet store JSON file reference with openapi underscore weather.yml, which is the name of the file that hopefully you downloaded. Yeah, openapi underscore weather. You can you should see that file in the same directory uh, where you've your same dist directory if you saved it there. Openapi underscore weather.yml. It could be called whatever you want, but but that's what this file is. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you have you downloaded it yet? No, because I got lost. Okay, <laughs> go go. I can take a shortcut, right? Just tell yeah, me sure. Open well, yeah, but you need to download it from from the workshop activities page. Let me go to that. Uh, if you're back over here under the workshop activities page, step three. Save this file locally. Sure, sure. Okay. Save that file into your dist folder. Wait, so what's the question? You're saying where do you put all these these files? No, like, to, to, how do you create the file itself with the individual pieces? Like, I understand oh. the pieces, but how do you create the file? You know, you can just open up any text editor and create a file called openapi-whatever.yml. And uh, if you use Atom or Sublime Text, it should syntax highlight so that things are more readable. Uh, for YAML or JSON, or or really probably you might um, start using the editor instead. Like start in the Swagger editor online instead, and then when you're done, download that file or copy copy it. The Swagger editor actually caches stuff, so if you uh, if you leave something in there and you close it, it's still going to be in there when you open it. But I wouldn't trust that. The this is part of the the separation between the open source Swagger editor and the commercial Swagger Hub. Swagger Hub, you can save your file there, you can have people collaborating on it, you can have line comments, you know, they built functionality around it. But I mean, if you don't have it, then you can just save the file locally. It's just a text file. All right, so did everybody, does everybody have something that looks like this? Who, who is still um, trying to get this set up? One person, two, three, four, five. Okay. I will. Uh, I'll come around and, and help briefly. Um, let me see if people are getting stuck in a certain certain way. Wait, you had your hand raised over here. You did. Yeah, it's in the index. Um, scroll down. Scroll down. It's line 77. Okay. Yeah, right there. So you should just be able to put open API weather, no, no HTTP. Okay. 
assuming you downloaded this file, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, line 77 is where that URL parameter is. Oh. Failed to load spec. And what browser is this? Yeah, try to load it in Firefox and it'll work. This is, uh, this is Chrome blocking it. Yeah, for reasons, don't know. Yeah, you got it? Okay, good. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, over here. All right. How do I decompress that? How do you what? Decompress that. Oh, so you have it downloaded and click download? Download zip. All right. Now, let's see. Just open it up. Like, click the little arrow there. Whoops, little arrow. Show in Finder. Yeah, show in Finder right there. Or in folder, sorry. Uh, and you should just be able to double click it. So it looks like you already did it once, but double click it. And extract all. And uh, yeah, that's fine. Just go ahead and hit extract. All right. Okay, now go into this folder and copy the dist folder and put that somewhere like on your desktop or somewhere where you can access it, find it. All right, and then Okay. Then let's see. Have you downloaded the YAML file from the? Okay. So go back to the workshop activities page. Oh, I hope I did. That's all right. I'll just. Yeah, I'd rather be writing.com/slash learn API doc. Oh. Why did all of this minimize? Yeah. Uh, just find a browser window somewhere. There you go. Click one of those guys. There you go. I'd rather be writing.com. There we go. Okay. Uh, and then workshop activities. Scroll down to this section right there. And save that file. Click or right click and save file as, save link as. There we go. Put it in that disk folder. Yeah, I think you, uh, no, where'd you put it? You put it on the desktop, I think. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so just save it there. Uh, okay. Oh, wait, no, you, you pasted the disk thing. Try, try clicking that again and save. Oh, there you go. There's your thing. Go back to the desktop there. And now disk. Okay. Uh, and uh, you have two folders? Yeah, sure. Okay. Wait, how come? What? See? Um, all right, just hit save. Just hit save. All right, now, do you have a text editor? Open up a text editor. Like Sublime or Atom. Or, there you go. So, now, uh, 
Okay, so go and open up that disk folder, file open. Uh, no, I mean from here, like from file, file, open, and find that. Uh, okay, click your desktop, dist, and find the e index. Okay, and line 77. Okay. You're going to replace this value with open, open API uh, underscore weather dot YML. And then try opening that in Firefox. What, but no, no HTTP, just a straight file. Okay, open API. Weather underscore dot. Wait, 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 sorry. Open API underscore weather, I think. Let me see. Dot YML. All right. Um, I will continue to help anybody who needs it here in a minute. But um, I think we are ready for a break. Well, here's what we're going to do after the break, just so you have an idea. Um, well, there's two other sections. One is. Maybe I should uh, try to think. Sure. Are we ready for a break right now? Is there food? Uh, we're going to go get food. So oh. They'll be here in like 15 minutes. Oh, so we've got 15 minutes. So it probably makes sense to take a break in 15 minutes. Then. Okay. All right. We'll wait for that. We've got one more activity then. This makes sense because we're still in the open API swagger thing. We're going to do activity under part two, open API with stoplight. All right, so Stoplight is a new product, and I don't have that much experience with it. I only used it on one project, um, but it's pretty cool. So what this is going to allow you to do is to work with the OpenAPI definition within a visual model modeler. Basically, it's a GUI for creating the OpenAPI definition, um, and it's a pretty good one. So. Download the desktop app, and you might have to create, you might have to have a Stoplight account. So if you already have GitHub, it should log you in with GitHub, and then download the desktop app. You can also just work with it in the browser, but one of these apps uh, tends to work well. I don't know why they give so many options. I downloaded the Mac one, and it seemed to work well for me. But you should have something that looks like this, this editor, uh, when you're when you're set up. All right, so. Um, how many people have? How many people already have Stoplight downloaded and installed? It didn't work for me. Three. Okay. Four. Uh, this I think is a really worthwhile tool. So go ahead and let's start from scratch here. If you go to Stoplight.io in your browser, click the V3 Technical Preview. Their version three is much better than their version two. It will prompt you to log in. And you can have it log you in through GitHub if you have a GitHub account. If not, do whatever else to log in. And, you, and once you're logged in, let me know. It's the button right here. Yeah. Let's see. Maybe we won't spend time trying to figure out the, let's do, uh, 
Right. If you don't want to download the app, that's fine. You can just you can just do the browser based. In fact, that's probably easier. Um, right. So once you're once you're there, sorry. Let me go back. It'll say, okay. Let me come back to that. Oh no, I'm in it. Okay. So once you're logged in, you'll see a screen like this. Click New Project. If you have the if you have the web app downloaded, great. You can work from there. I guess there's really no clear advantage to having it uh, versus using it in the browser. But yeah. So if I already use this for work, should I do personal projects so I don't like mess anything up? Oh. Oh, you actually use this for work already? Yeah. Oh. Sweet, sweet. Oh, uh, yeah. Some, put it in some space. Maybe personal projects, whatever. In a yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Or if you have a different account or something, uh, we're just gonna have you make a sample little test project, and you're gonna paste in a, an open API definition into it. Um, Stoplight's whole philosophy is that you really want to build around this definition. And so you make it accessible for different partners and people on the team to kind of model and brainstorm and build it. And then you have services on top of it. So the fact that you've got a GUI uh, makes it more accessible to other players. So who, have you got to this page right here, new project? Are we good? OK, you click new project, create it, call it whatever you want. And then it should send you to a page that looks like this. Once you're on this page, click the little page thingy at the top. What does it say? Files. Mine says new workspace. Uh, Am I in the new API? Uh, new workspace. Yeah, did you click V3? The V3 technical preview button on the, on the home page? If not, Go back to that stoplight.io and click V3. Because the V3 is way better than the previous one. Um, okay, once you're on here, click main OAS. OAS is usually short for open API, um, open API specification. And it, it has a sample API in here. But we are going to replace this with our own. Okay. So what I want you to do is go back on the workshop page, which I seem to conveniently go away from. <laughs> workshop activities, open API and stoplight. Download, or, or don't even download, just click number two here from main OAS, open the code tab, and paste in the content for this 2.0 JSON op open API. So whereas the Swagger editor, you can use 3.0, you can use YAML or JSON. In Stoplight, you've got to use JSON, and it's got to be 2.0, right? So I think you have to use JSON. I'm not entirely sure. But copy, copy this 2.0 JSON definition. And in Stoplight, click the Code tab down here and paste, uh, delete what's there, and paste in the new definition. Oh, please. Oh, yeah. Paste in the new definition and replace any extra little things at the bottom. All right, so 
I know I went through that fast, sir. So you've got on the on the workshop page, you should have this little section that has a link to a, a Swagger 2.0 spec. That's what you want to copy um, and paste into Stoplight. So I'll give you a sec and then click Save. I'll give you a sec to get to that point. Yeah. I've been writing a 3.0 YAML spec, yeah. and then like I convert it to 2.0, and like and then I have to learn like the nuances of 2.0. And yeah, so you're you're saying that it's it's kind of frustrating that the tools between 3.0 and 2.0. Right now, like most of the tools only support 2.0. I don't know why they're taking so long to to update. I, I yeah, no, I recommend. I recommend writing the spec in 3.0 in YAML and then using API Transformer to convert it to 2.0 JSON if you want to work in Stoplight. I mean, you don't have to. This is just an optional tool. I'm looking for Swagger 2.0. It should be right under um, activity open API with Stoplight. Search for the word Stoplight on there. And then step number two has a link to to a big long link to a file that ends in .json. It's a weather twenty. It's not yeah. 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. So you click that. Well, up at the top it says Swagger 2.0. So, so copy that. Copy the entire file. Yeah. The link. Or copy the code at this page. Like Control All, Control C. And then back in Stoplight. Um, do a new project. I, I clicked on new project. Yeah, new project. And then the main. Sure, call it whatever you want. Doesn't really matter. Um, try clicking. We'll, we'll name it something. And then below. There you go. Yes. All right, and then in the upper left, click the little page icon thing. It says files. There you go. Uh, and then click main OAS2, right? Right there. Main OAS2. Now, now there should be a, you might want to just click the X there. Click the code tab. Code tab, uh-huh. Highlight everything and delete it. Where's the code tab? It should be down at the bottom. Between, you see like a visual, yeah. Everything highlighted, click delete key, Yeah. backspace. Wow. <laughs> wow. I don't know what to tell you. It seems. Can I just do paste? Because well, well, I've got yeah, it Yeah, try, paste, try pasting. And then you just paste. Swagger 2.0. No? Yeah, but it's not, the, it's not the one you pasted. I don't know why you can't delete something. Okay, fine. That's pretty interesting. You should be able to delete that. Copied all and deleted, but I tried. But okay, fine. There you go. Now delete that too, if you can. And now paste. Oh wait, but did you did you like this? Leave the red curly bracket. No, no. Do, get rid of that too. Oh, just go ahead and paste. Do hit paste, and we'll delete that. All right. Now remove. Go down to the very bottom. Remove the extra curly brace that we couldn't get rid of earlier. No, no, no. Not that one. 
Wait, wait. Uh, you need one more curly brace because you accidentally or hit Control Z again. There you go. Just these last two, the last two curly braces. There you go. Now switch, hit save. All right. So, hold on. Yes. Um, scroll down to the very bottom. Is there? Um, wait. Can we? We need to see what's there. There's two extra curly braces there at the end that don't get pasted. All right. There's kind of a. There's kind of a subtle sort of copy and paste uh, glitch thingy. If you're getting a invalid error, see, my, my thought was that you just copy, you just delete the existing one and paste it, but it likes to leave two curly braces there even when you delete it, and these get put at the end, and then it says invalid. So just look at the end of your definition and remove these guys. But just make sure you only remove those. Okay, if you don't have it invalid, you're good. It's okay to have eight errors. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. If I do, yeah. I don't know what the errors are. I'll have to find out. I thought they were fun. We'll have to find out. Uh, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, must be. Okay, never mind. Don't worry about that. Thing is, I, I think when I converted from. When I did it, I. I had some features that were 3.0 specific, so I don't know what happened there. Anyway, um, yeah, we'll have to see. All right, so how many people have got it in their editor? Most people, cool. Let me just give a quick tour of how this, this guy works, or this, per, this little UI works. Um, and you can populate it. You don't have to start by populating it from an existing definition. Uh, normally, you would probably just do it step by step. But first, you've got like your your general definition and description and so forth. And you you specify things like, oh, this is the the host and and so forth. Well, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, click on expand, for example, weather data, and click one of the the options under weather data. Now, now it gives us a GUI for working with this. Uh, we can specify the method here. We have the endpoint definition, the description. You can use markdown here. And then there are three different sections where it groups things. Basics, request, and responses. And you can go through here. And at any time, you can always toggle to the code and just grab, grab the code. It will, it will default to the part you're actually working in. So, if I make an update here and say, you know, whatever, hello, and go back to the visual editor, you'll see that it, it syncs between the two. You know, it, it, it actually lets you go between the two. A lot of times systems, you go to the code view and it's like read only or it's way confusing, but this is a valid spec over here. You switch down here with tabs at the bottom, visual and code. Thank you. Yeah, and sometimes maybe the UI won't let you do some more sophisticated description, so you switch to the code. But if you come into um, this first section, basics, you've got uh, different things that you can add here. Uh, expand the, res the request. You can add your query parameters. You can see this one has two query parameters, lat. You define what 
the data type is here. And if you uh, click this little icon, this little book icon, you can add a description. This one doesn't have much of a description. Uh, but basically, this gives you a lot of different options to describe things. Expand the um, responses section. And this is where it gets the most interesting. You remember this, this response that we had for the weather data it was really, really complex. Let me just remind you what this looks like. Um, uh, let me go to, where did we have it? One second. Uh, okay. So if you remember this, this weather data part here has a monstrous response. It's got a query object that contains a count object and results and so forth. And some of these are arrays and some are, you know, some aren't and some of the values are integers. If you're documenting this by hand, it is kind of a nightmare in, in OpenAPI. It's confusing. It's hard to do. But here is the magic. And this is why I think this tool is worth checking out. Right? If you are, let me come back to my uh, workshop description. Uh, let's say that you have, to, you have this really nasty, gnarly response that you've got to uh, deal with. And I've got a sample here. Copy and paste this guy. Go to, go to the workshop thing, copy and paste this, because this is, this is kind of mind-blowing. Instead of having to go through and line by line describe this thing, the stoplight tool will automatically do it. So um, I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and copy. I'll give you a second. Or maybe I'll demonstrate this a couple times. Um, in the responses section, already there's an object there, right? Uh, so I'm just going to create a new little path here, a new sample operation. Um, OK. OK. If let's say I had this response that I had to deal with, um, click editor. If you click this generate from JSON button, you paste in the snippet of JSON that you want to document, and now you click generate, and you'll see that it has automatically like documented it. If you look at the raw schema, it has gone through and described each of the components with like what they. Are. Uh, this is JSON schema documentation that the OpenAPI spec would use. So you, you can save yourself lots of time this way um, by just using this little automated tool. To take it things one step further, um, in your response definitions, you want to give an example of things. So ideally, uh, I think this is actually missing in, their, in this current version of their interface, but it would be coming. You want to go and give examples of each of these properties. We're not going to do this. In, oh, they have added it. My bad. Uh, for example, uh, let's say this example of three or something. Um, when you have examples for each property in the response, then when Swagger UI reads, your open API description, it will dynamically pull all the examples from this schema definition into a sample request body that, that looks um, 
that is kind of whole unto itself. Let me give an example of what I'm trying to say. Uh, let's take a look at this Swagger project here. This get weather data <clears throat> has a response right here, right? This is not this is not just one chunk of code that I pasted and then defined somewhere else. These are all examples that are defined in that schema definition. This, this model here, uh, if I expand this guy, it shows the, the definition of count, for example. It shows an example, shows the data type, and all of these example values are dynamically pulled into the example value here rather than stored separately. And you want to you want to do this because a lot of times when developers give you information about the API they'll say here's an example value and then you start describing it and so forth. But you, you don't want to have the two be separate. You want to generate the example value from the example properties in your schema definition here. And I realize uh, that's, I don't know if I've articulated that very well but um, the Swagger UI gives you a nice expandable, collapsible kind of view of these things. It, it does a nice job of putting the, de the description with an example with how it appears nested in it that I like. So you can kind of go through here and see the structure of it. Um, the only problem with Swagger UI is it just whoever did the UI design I guess they ran into challenges because when you have stuff that's long, it just sort of breaks out of it, and it sort of it needs its own space. You can't you can't make this fit a narrow width. It it sort of has too much space. Anyway, maybe better tools will come along and fix it. Okay, um, so yeah, sorry that wasn't that exciting, but I, I found that that was very helpful when I was documenting something the other week. Um, and I was excited about it because I spent like half the day trying to figure out how to document a JSON schema, any of property. Um, but in general, like this GUI can, it, once you get familiar with it and you, you work with it, like you can just start focusing on the content of the definition rather than the format. And that's where I think the real value comes in. I mean, imagine if you had to write uh, a blog post in YAML format that was really specific. Like it would block the whole creative process. You'd be like, well, what's the syntax and what's the format? The, you can't create content like that. You have to create content in a flexible space where you can see things and you can work with the actual substance and not worrying about the format and the syntax. Um, even if you were working in Dita, a lot of times people write documentation in a, more of a simple format and then they decide to port it into the XML schema that they need when they're, when they're done. And I think this, this tool, by giving visual design around it, is kind of allowing you to do that, to focus on the actual substance. Um, this does have some other features, just FYI, like you can, you can host documentation on here. Uh, for, let me show an example. I think their classic one is ShopGate. API. There we go. Um, they, <clears throat> you can have more of a fully hosted experience here, where you have both your non-reference content, <clears throat> your tutorials, and your reference content. You know, a lot of these portals will will give you one or the other, but uh, they, they bring it together. I haven't used this for for 
you know, hosting documentation, but it sounds like SendGrid is using it. Is that what you're saying? Or just for the APIs or what? Okay. Um, and then, nice and slow. Oh, that's probably the so network here. On the left hand side, if you open up API, okay. and then go to uh, just have this ingrid API v3. All right. So this is actually just an iframe right now, but um, this is all just built in. Mm, okay. So that's a little tried out tab. Nice. And, uh, you know, I like, one thing I really like is how in their request body, you've got like an easy toggle between the schema, which is the description of the request, and the example. I think that works really well. And here they've got collapsible sections. So, you know, that, that conundrum or that challenge I said about how do you format and describe something that's nested and hierarchical and multiple levels. Look, they even have like a show more part. Looks like a pretty pretty robust API response here, right? So did you, did you, were you the one who documented this? How, what was the experience? Can you no, comment? So we, um, we're nested under a developer experience team. Okay. Um, so most of this was done when I was working on the API. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, good, good. You said you your team also works on the Watson API. I thought that was an no, IBM thing. Oh, she came from. Okay. Yeah, those guys have a ton of uh, APIs. Who's hungry? Looks like we're time for a break. Okay, let's eat, and we'll come back. And after the break, we have one final segment. We'll talk about the non-reference content. You guys ready to go get back into API stuff? Let's do it. We got 40, 45. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so I actually have a whole other segment that I sometimes cover when it comes to um, <clears throat> when I have a whole other segment about tools and publishing, but we really did, we kind of jumped into that a lot yesterday, and uh, a lot of it's not really that specific to APIs. But I do have a different presentation where I talk about some of these API platforms that you could use to host doc. We talked about Swagger UI, and Swagger Hub. Readme.io is one worth checking out if you want a third party hosting. It's a really nice site. It gives you a lot of visual design tools. It's quite popular. Um, <clears throat> another one is called Spectacle. I'm just briefly mentioning these. Spectacle is a free open source project. You feed it an in, in open API definition and it spits out a layout like this. One drawback is that you can't add any non-reference files or other tutorial files, so it's kind of one trick pony there. Um, and then API-matic has some interesting stuff. They give you a little drop-down menu to jump to different tools or different languages <clears throat> so that developers, you know, uh, get code that's very customized to them. Haven't, haven't used that. 
And finally, one other called Restlet Studio. It seems pretty robust, and it also has visual modeling tools. So um, this is kind of similar to the stoplight UI, where you've got <clears throat> a way to describe things in the UI. Uh, there's a ton of tools in this space. Some might work for you, some might not. You could always code things by hand, right? It's your choice. But um, this is just a taste of it. And if you want more info on this, uh, look on my site. You'll, you'll find a recorded presentation and so forth. Um, <clears throat> now, this last section, I'm calling non-reference content in docs. And a lot of times when people talk about API documentation, they sort of only cover the reference stuff because it's highly specific to APIs. You've got structure and you've got definitions and standards. But in all reality, the reference stuff, a lot of times the engineers create it because it's easy to write. There's known parameters. There's known like fields. There's, no, there's known things. It's a form, essentially, that they fill out. The hard part is the tutorial, the conceptual, the non-reference content. These could be guides, uh, how-to tasks, um, really how to use the API in a real scenario, doing different contexts, or how do, you, how do you code things, like code tutorials. So, and this is often where technical writers spend more of their time, right? So you may be thinking, well, why did I spend all the time doing reference stuff? Well, anyway. It, <laughs> There's only so much one can say about the non-reference stuff, because a lot of times it's specific to the API. But <clears throat> here are some general sections that are common and are more specific to API docs that you'll probably want. So when you're thinking about, oh, what else do I need? I've got my reference stuff set. <coughs> Consider these 11 topics. One, an overview. And I'll dive into each of these. This is an overview. Uh, getting started, authentication, status and error codes, rate limiting, code samples and tutorials, SDKs and sample apps, a quick reference, best practices with the API, a glossary, and an FAQ. If you had all these in your documentation, it would be awesome. <laughs> a lot of times you know how it is. You're lucky if you have like barely enough to make it coherent. But um, yeah. And I've got more information on this on my site. But let's, let's dive into each of these. And uh, after we're done, we'll, we'll try to enter some more discussions about things. But uh, again, if you have questions, let's chat about them when you have them. The API overview is usually the homepage of your API docs. And you explain in a big picture way what your API does. Um, most APIs, I have a quote here, most APIs they fail because of this overview, uh, essentially. This is a quote from the top 20 reasons startups fail by Treehouse Logic. They say, startups fail when they're not solving a market problem. We were not solving a large enough problem that we could universally serve with a scalable solution. We had great technology, great data on shopping behavior, great reputation as a thought leader, great expertise, great advisors, etc. But what we didn't have was technology or business model that solved a pain point in a scalable way. So your overview needs to describe the pain point that your business model solves. Um, what is your API? What does it do? What is it for? Why should I use it? 
Because for every API that's out there, there's probably half a dozen others that do something very similar. And um, I'm sure you know this and, and observe this, but when you're, you're uh, in a project, people sort of become immune to the purpose and the larger uh, point of, of the product and just assume that people know what it's for, that what it's used for. And pretty soon you have a whole set of documentation with no clear idea of what it even does or what, what it solves. It just dives right into the technical details. These are the endpoints. This is this. It's like, well, wait a minute. What, what is this thing for? Um, and, and this larger perspective uh, is often why these fail, like people are choosing, customers are choosing, developers are trying to figure out what API to use for different services, and if they can't figure it out from reading your doc overview, they might just skip it. So this is a good page, it's often overlooked. Uh, let's look at an example. Let's look at SendGrid while we have the SendGrid person here. Actually, I, I use their API as an example for a lot of things, but this is a particularly good one. What is SendGrid, right? If, if I just look at the name, I have no idea that it is related to email. Um, I mean, a grid could be anything, really. But they define what it is, who it's for, uh, and, and do it fairly briefly. You know, it's, you create marketing campaigns with it. It's an API for sending email or something. Um, it's, it's very uh, well done. Let's look at one more. Lyft. <clears throat> you may think, a Lyft API? Well, everybody knows Lyft, right? Except for, no, they're, they're not going to start with that assumption. Instead, they're like, what is Lyft? Um, and they define it. And, you know, hey, if you are totally unfamiliar with Lyft, here's more information. Why use Lyft? They even provide a glossary, which is, you know, always welcome. So this is the homepage, and definitely it should have that. Um, all right, next section. Getting started. This is a core topic that you always want in your API. Again, this, is, this can be forgotten, but, but it's very helpful. In programming, like uh, how-to books, you often have a hello world tutorial. And this tutorial is the quickest way to get something up and running and like an output, a very minimal output from beginning to end. Um, how you set up your environment and you, you make this call and you compile it and you get the output. Well, the getting started is doing that same thing but with your API. Um, good, good API docs have this, bad ones don't. So here's an example of getting started with PayPal. And this is a, a, it says, hey look, first you have to get your authorization tokens. Um, Here's some quick requests and so forth. This is a sample request that you make, some sample parameters. So you might pick out like one, one of your API uh, endpoints that you want and just have somebody plug it in and see how it works. Um, a lot of times they want to they do a test just so they can make sure they're authorizing it and, and it's working. Um, there's some other really fascinating ones from Twilio that we'll dive into later, but uh, let's look at one more. Um, how about IBM Cloud? After their intro and their first pages, they've got getting started with Watson and IBM Cloud. Number one, you need an account. You know, number two, find the service you want. They do get um, 
negative points for an animated GIF in here, but that's all right. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Two animated GIFs at the same time. Wow, I'm about ready to you know, have vertigo. But creating a project, step three. And next step. So you want to hold the user's hand, get them going in a very simple way. Um, actually, on the topic of videos, most developers dislike videos, but the one scenario where they work well are when people are starting from ground zero. And, and so in a getting started tutorial, it can be on the ball. And, and this is probably the speed and the length of video that developers will tolerate. <laughs> a five second looping video on hyper, hyper speed. Anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, <laughs> Okay, getting started is great because um, really you need this as a technical writer or we need this as a technical writer. When you have an API that people may dump a bunch of information on you, you need to test it. You have to get started. You have to go through these steps. So you can just document what you're doing. Um, the run and postman button, we covered this, but this is a great thing that you can add to help people get started uh, right away. Won't go back over this. Um, and there's even, there's even an acronym for measuring the time it takes. You could maybe do usability around this and say, hey, uh, Joe or Sally programmer, we want you to go through this Hello World tutorial and see how long it takes you to complete it and time it. And if you have a good API, maybe you can do this in five minutes. But if it takes you five hours, well, you know, that lets, it level sets, you know, some expectations around it. But, but it, you, can, you can put some metrics and usability around it. All right, authorization and authentication. Uh, I remember we had this somewhere. There's a difference between the two, and this is one of the most important parts of your API docs. But there's a difference between the two. The authentication is, are you who you say you are? Whereas authorization is, uh, are, are you, who we now know, uh, allowed to do this action? So somebody could be authorized. For example, um, when I log into README, it knows me, but then it rejects any ability for me to do anything because my trial has expired. So that, <laughs> that, uh, that's the difference between the two. But your authorization, <coughs> generally, Generally, APIs have uh, several different ways that you can authorize things. The most simple is an API key. And if you have an API key, just consider yourself lucky because it's, it's very simple to document. Uh, essentially, an API key is a token that is passed in the header of your request that has a big, long alphanumeric string. Uh, it's encrypted and so forth as it travels across the wires and uh, hits the API. Um, the API validates the token, says, yes, this is a good API key. We'll go ahead and give you uh, access. An example from SendGrid as well. Um, the, the API key is used uh, where you know, super robust security may not be absolutely necessary. Um, another very common one, or, or less common one, actually, uh, is HMAC. Uh, HMAC, oh man, this thing always escapes me. Hashed something, application something. All right, what it is is a key that is hashed. And here's how it works. I've tried to diagram. This is actually my diagram attempting to do this. I, I worked at a place where we did HMAC, and every different API endpoint 
had a different HMAC key. So not only did you have to do it for one, like every single endpoint needed its own. It was quite a frustrating thing. The idea is um, <clears throat> you've got a message combined with a key that produces a signature. And this key is known to you or the developer or the app and it's known to the server. The server has the same key. When this message, the signature, uh, travels to the server, the server uses the same key to decrypt it and check out that it's a, a correct signature. Now, you would never have to describe this process to a user. Uh, usually people don't want you to even know the inner workings of security. But you might just have to explain that, oh, this is the HMAC uh, authorization model and this is your key and this is how you generate this signature which then you'll have to put into your requests. All right, um, another very common one is OAuth. OAuth, you've all used this, no doubt, uh, when you're, you're prompted to log in to a site using Google or Twitter or Facebook. Basically OAuth has a separate authentication server separate from your API. So let's say this top part is your app. Your app first makes a request into this authentication server, and if successful, you get a token returned that's valid. It says, yes, you're legit. This token is then sent in with your request to the API. So you have like a different server. This is your Twitter, Facebook, Google authentication server that plays a central role of authenticating you by providing you this valid token. Um, OAuth tends to require uh, some more explanation and so forth, but in your, let's say that you're, you're using Dropbox or your Dropbox technical writer and they're like, yes, we use OAuth. Well, what does that documentation look like? Yeah, here we go. You might have a description about some workflow. You would never have to describe OAuth itself, like document how OAuth works which is probably uh, a magnitude times a thousand more complex than, than what you'd w want in your documentation. So I'm not able to scroll very smoothly here. Um, but basically, <clears throat> you might describe what you need to put in the header, you know, what token, what it's called, how you generate the token, how long it lasts, uh, any kind of other details about it. Um, as you, you might have that, right? And, and this is information you would get from your developers, your team. They would explain how it's authenticated because um, as you're documenting these, you need to authenticate them yourself. You'll have to generate a token and do the same process. So it should be like complementary to your other endpoint request testing. And there's some other methods. Uh, there's another one called basic, but uh, it's not worth getting into. All right, status and error codes. This is, this is an area that <clears throat> is ripe for technical writers and communicators and strategists to insert themselves and provide value. When you submit a bad request, you get back an error code that usually tells you why the request was rejected or why it was bad. For example, uh, 500 means there was some kind of error on the server. 403 means maybe you don't have, you're not authorized for it. Um, and in an ideal world, the error code should have some kind of uh, 
helpful message that lets a user recover from this failure. You know, if you have bad API keys or something, your error message should say, you know, for more information about API keys, see this topic or something. I rarely see that done, <clears throat> partly because uh, a lot of times these messages aren't aren't readily discoverable. You you have to go hunting for them. Um, they're not part of the happy path, right? You you have to try to break the API. You, when you test things, put in bad parameters, put in uh, incorrect things, bad API keys. See what happens, and you can kind of compile these. You should also be able to tell your developers, hey, I want a list of all the status and error codes, and and maybe you can even craft messages for them. You know. Worst case scenario, they're just hard-coded into the different API um, code. You know, best case scenario, they're referenced in some nice uh, maybe XML file or something that you can easily submit through a translation process. Um, at any rate, let's take a look. Let's take a look at a couple of these. Oops. Uh, clear bits. Okay. So. Because, because these errors are typically uh, mostly the same for all your endpoints, they're often put on one page. Um, but if they were specific to a particular endpoint, you could put it on that endpoint's reference page. But here this person, this Clearbit docs, they're like, hey, 402 over quota, over plan quota on this endpoint. Maybe that's all that needs to be said. You could maybe say more. Um, but they have a whole, I mean, this, this this leads itself to a troubleshooting page. It's a very natural fit. And, and in other areas, uh, I think a different example here, I think Twitter has a good troubleshooting. Yeah, they really have a lot to say. For example, 403, forbidden. It's not enough to just say, hey, it's a forbidden request. They actually explain it. They're like, we, we understood it, but you didn't have the right uh, authorization. And here's something about update limits and other reasons. So this is like, this is a difference between good API documentation where you actually have a uh, detailed error uh, reason, troubleshooting, versus a bad API documentation set that might just say forbidden. Um, I think you can really see a lot of the difference in this status and error codes. How many status and error codes are documented? Here's the enhance your calm one. I, st I need to figure out how I do that to get my enha enhance my calm. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if that's just a joke or not, but anyway. There's also a logic to these error codes. All the 400 error codes are a certain type. Like you would never have successful responses that have 400s. Um, and and uh, yeah, for the most part, if you have a, a 200, okay, there's not a lot to say about it, and it's a standard error code, then you're fine. But if you have a specific one that's unique to your API that you have something to say about, definitely jump in there. Um, yeah, what's your question? Wait, on some websites they make them funny? Wait, where? Yeah, like you'll get, you'll get the, the code, but then there will be a funny message. Oh, it's not me, it's us. Yeah. Like 
Oh, kind of like how people are playful with the 404 pages and they do all kinds of... So, you know, if you're in an environment where that kind of tone is allowed, I think that's awesome. I've been in so many places where, yeah, it's very like, you could never say that in the corporate voice. Um, I don't really know. Uh, I would say go with it. <laughs> I've, I have no idea, really. Um, it would be okay to add, add another column here. Which, sure. The Yeah, yeah. So you're saying, like, instead of, uh, uh, like, not found, you might have a, a jokey thing that's like, we're still looking for it or something, you know? Yeah, yeah you might put them both there. I'm not really sure. <laughs> that seems like a fun scenario, though. Like, of all the scenarios you'd have, that would be the least uh, worrisome. And, and people usually welcome that. Well, sort of. You do? It okay. On how don't make the You're right. You're right. The translation, there may be some, like, for example, how does this 420 enhancer calm translate into Japanese? They maybe look at this and say, well, well maybe they're like, oh, ha, ha. Or maybe they're completely, like, confused. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah, humor is a whole other topic we could get into. For some reason, in the developer doc space, humor seems to be allowed in third-party documentation and almost encouraged, especially in code comments. But All right, uh, rate limiting and thresholds is another area. We talked about this briefly. This is part of the reason for API keys. You want to restrict how many calls people can make. They often have plans around, like, a pro plan has 10,000 calls per day. If you, if you get more than 10,000 visits on your website and each time your website loads, it makes a call, you start to see how it works. Um, these thresholds are often defined by marketing and other people on the business side. They may not always be known info to developers and may not be applicable to put that in your docs. You don't want to say, after 10,000 calls per day, you're charged an extra two cents per call. I mean, that's not a documentation sort of thing, unless that sort of merges the pricing and the docs together. But you should know. And, and a lot of times, if you do surpass the threshold, people start to throttle you, and suddenly it's very slow, right? You've experienced this, no doubt, with internet. And um, same with developers. If suddenly, if, if they've gone past the limit and now the call takes five seconds to return and their whole website is slow, this is something they need to know. This is a danger they don't want to run into. All right, code samples and tutorials are another, this is a sort of general area, but you're gonna have, you're, you will need this in some way or another. Your API will need some kind of tutorial, like for example, with Flickr. Let's say you wanted to return a list of, of, of images from a gallery in Flickr. Well, it's not so straightforward how to do that. Like first you have to make one request and you get the response from that request and you pair it with another request and then you assemble the like responses from these requests into some other code to display on your page. And if you just look at the reference, you're not gonna, you know, it's not gonna be intuitive. So your endpoints may have specific workflows. You you just a straight list of them grouped by tags isn't enough. You explain how you actually use these, these, these endpoints 
in real business scenarios. And probably the hands down most interesting example of this is on Twilio. They've got these quick start things. First of all, they have some amazing filtering on the left, but disregarding that, let's say you are you're trying to do some kind of SMS messaging quick start. First of all, you can pick your language. So let's do it in Node. Um, oh, and it's an out, whatever. Uh, once you get down to the bottom, they have like another section that expands up. You get down to this section, expand up, and they kind of walk you through it line by line. This is another example of good documentation, right? Actual, an actual tutorial on how to use the service, the API. Um, it's sort of fascinating to see that. I, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm not a Twilio user, so I don't know if it's good, but it seems good. MailChimp is another great example. Um, these guys, these guys don't assume anything. They really, they really make sure that you understand basic API concepts and walk you through this whole process. But here, this is how you manage subscribers, right? They don't just say, oh, you manage subscribers with the um, sus subscriber endpoint and go figure it out. No, it's like, before you start, think about this. You're gonna need to identify your subscribers. You need to check the subscription status. Now you subscribe to the address and here's, here's the code and so forth. So it really walks you through this from beginning to end. And that is what is missing in a lot of docs is this end-to-end -end process for how to do something. Too often developers just dump the reference docs on you. Here's the swagger file. It's all obvious because I've been developing and desi designing this for over a year. And, and, and users are just not really sure on, on the way to go. So, Doing, you mean this versus a swim lane diagram? Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of flowcharts, and so if you have like some kind of uh, navigation map arranged in a swim lane that makes sense, sure, I, th I, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, I have, uh, yeah, I just let me do a quick aside here. In one of my docs, um, I'm really a big fan of these flowcharts, so I'll show you what they, what I uh, implemented for one product. So, beginning to end process. I have all these different like maps and these journeys, and let's say you, you're just getting set up. I like to embed this at the top of, of each page that walks you through it. I mean, some people have it all on one page and so forth, but I like this map that guides you through a larger system. I think it's totally appropriate in scenarios uh, that are tutorial based like this. It's really where tech writers shine because developers, they don't, they don't like to write this, they're not good at it, and um, we can really add a lot of value there. People implement this same kind of thing in a lot of different ways. This is very static. If you have swim lanes, you probably have more complex branching and more sophisticated ways to you know, show the logic through a system. Um, and you probably have tools for doing that, even if it's just an image. Okay. Um, this is a, a brief quote about you know what makes good API docs. While a developer's guide should walk a, a, a developer through the basic usage of an API and its functionality, it can't cover every possible use of an API in, 
in a coherent way. That is where articles and tutorials come in to teach developers tangential or specialized uses of an API, like combining it with another service, framework, or API. This is from the six pillars of complete developer documentation. It's kind of like preaching to the choir here because we're all like, yeah, of course you need that, but a lot of developers, they don't, they don't think like that. And when you look around for like API platform hosting, a lot of them just show the reference content, like no, no non-reference tutorial content, as if that's all a developer needs. So. Okay, now probably the most challenging one, SDKs and sample apps. Um, I described what an SDK is earlier, software development kit. This accompanies an API and it's in a specific language. Like you may have an Android SDK that implements your API for Android phones. You may have a Java SDK or Node.js app and you'll often be asked to publish these and, and create documentation for them. And this is uh, where it gets really nerve-wracking because you may be like, uh, well, I don't, I don't know Android. I don't know Java. I don't know Node. And now you've got this SDK that's this jumble of files and the developer says, well, um, somebody who is a Java developer is gonna know how to use this you know, because they know Java. So you just have to just put it out there, put a link to it, right? Like, uh, something sounds faulty about that, but. <laughs> Um, this is where it becomes very challenging. <coughs> Fortunately, there's, there's kind of a middle point. Obviously, you don't have to just throw yourself into Android and figure it all out and like eight months later say, okay, yeah, this looks good or no, we need this. Um, generally, you provide instructions on how to start the thing. Um, like with Android, you may say, here's how you launch this sample app or how you use the SDK in a very minimum way to, to get people started because you do expect that they're going to know Android. Um, or you may have developers writing the documentation around this, but you would want to go through and at, at a minimum see if you can make it work a little bit. Um, it's usually a standard I try to impose. I'm like, okay, I know you've got it all set up, but let me see if I can make it, make it work. Um, so when I worked at a a company that had an Android SDK. I was like, look, I don't really even know how I'm supposed to get this SDK launched. And they're like, oh, you, you download Android Studio, and then you, you uh, have this virtual device in there. And you know, they walked me through, and then I could, could see it. But um, <clears throat> it generally is something that is very common. Let's look at an example here. Uh, how about how about CityGrid? <clears throat> you can see they've got PHP code samples, basic information about like how you get to it. Um, a lot of times, if it's a sample app, you want to have the comments in line in the code in there. So a lot of times, developers will write that. Um, I guess that doesn't show a whole lot. Amazon, this is a the the S. The, or sorry, the AWS side. They tend to have really good documentation. Uh, and they've got whole like projects about how you, how you get going in these. Um, <clears throat> anyway, all right. Questions? Okay. The quick reference. This again is going above and beyond. Uh, 
Like I said before, not all API docs have these, but if you do have a quick reference, it's a sign of a good API doc set. set. A quick reference just shows one-liners about what, what are the endpoints or a quick, it's usually the endpoints, a quick summary of, of things. Here's an example from Eventful. They have sort of an index page that says here, here's all our methods and you can quickly see which one you want. Right? If you are really um, design savvy, you could even implement something like this. This is from Shopify. It's not really an API, but it's for developers. And they even have little toggles here. This is just JavaScript. It's kind of brilliant. They, they've got a lot of information here. It's trying to be comprehensive, and, and maybe it is, but certainly impressive. All right. Um, Another example is best practices. A lot of times, and this is, this is API best practices. There may be things that are just specific to your API that developers will want to know. Um, they, it could be stuff about pagination, time ranges, fault tolerance, cache values, connectivity. There are lots of different topics that, that could be related here. And they're not standard. It's not like every API needs best practices around like fault tolerance. But if your API does have some topics, uh, your, your documentation would cover these. Um, you would ask your developers, what are some best practices with the API? Are there any you know, gotchas, problems where people are gonna, gonna stumble, things I need to call out? And there, there usually is. But it's, it's not like the same for everybody. Uh, another above and beyond measure is to provide a glossary. Um, you know, in case you haven't noticed, there's a million different terms in this space, and not everybody has consistency. Uh, the great, the good sites actually define things. Um, this is immensely helpful for translation as well. In fact, it's usually required. But here's the Lyft glossary. They're defining kind of their their terms. I don't even. I didn't realize Lyft actually had all these options, uh, but but they they add them. So, you know, if you've got terms and you usually do, add a glossary. Okay, and finally the FAQ. Um, a lot of people have conflicting feelings about an FAQ. In bad documentation shops, what happens is people start out writing documentation as an FAQ, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's like. 20 pages, and then they call in a technical writer to try to organize it. But uh, hopefully the FAQ is just a brief highlight of really what the most frequently asked questions are with a link to more details in a regular documentation organization. All right, so those are 11 points. Um, <coughs> probably not like revelatory or super surprising, but does anybody have any questions about any of those? Because I have one last activity I want us to do. <laughs> Where do like, business cases or use case scenarios fall under? Use case scenarios? Or business cases? Huh. I would think in that overview page, like who is the API used for maybe? Okay. Um, yeah. I think that, that would be great. great to add that kind of information. Like who is it for? What are some sample scenarios? It's good for tutorials too, right? I mean, you can take one of those and make a tutorial of it. 
Yeah. Okay, uh, here's our last activity. And we didn't have any activities specifically related to the non-reference docs. Um, but this comes back to a question actually that you were asking. How do you kind of put your content back in the source flow? Um, and the activity I want us to do is the, act the GitHub workflow. Um, this is a common way that you will interact with information that might be in the developer's domain. Or if you have a docs as code workflow or something, you may be using Git. But it's pretty common in this space to understand like how you clone something, how you push, pull, branch, commit, and all. And raise your hand if, you've, if you're totally familiar with Git. Well, I shouldn't say totally. Raise your hand if you've worked with Git uh, and are familiar with Git. So only about a third, a third of the people. All right, and for the other people, it may be new. Okay. So here's what we're going to do, just kind of to, to get you going. Go to github.com. You're going to create a sample repository. You're going to clone the repository locally, make a change, and push the update back to the repository. If you can do that, then you can participate in workflows where you may need to go into the source code and make changes to a sample app, for example. That's probably the best example, really, that relates to non-reference docs. You want to correct the comments in the source, or if you have the scenario you described where they're code annotating in the source. All right, so uh, if you're at github.com and are logged in, you should see a little plus button in the upper right. Click it and choose new repository. And don't do this step too quickly because you need to initialize it with something, otherwise it's more complicated. So put something like um, Denver workshop test or something. Uh, type anything for the description and in the initialize with a readme, select that box. The git ignore place basically says these are these are the types of files that I'm not going to include in the repository even if they're in the same directory that you're tracking. So if you had a Jekyll project for example it will automatically add all the, the stuff. You, it doesn't really matter what you put there. And you can choose a license, choose MIT for fun. Um, so once you have this configured let me know. I don't want to lose anybody here. Okay, we're, we're good? Okay, you're going to click Create Repository, and it should take you right into the repository settings. If you're fortunate enough to actually have access to GitHub to manage your content, your sample apps, whatever other code you have, it's great. Um, okay, once you have that, click the green button and choose uh, and copy the clone, copy the clipboard. You want to copy this thing. Right? You can do it manually or click this. Are we all there? Anybody lost? Because usually, usually this is where the technical glitches happen, so that's why I saved it to the end. Come into Terminal and we just create a new tab there. Uh, make that visible. Okay. By default, your computer usually puts you in your own like user directory, so you could navigate to where you want. 
but we'll just assume you're where you want to be. Type git space clone and then paste the URL, just like that. Git clone. What cloning means is it's copying it. At, it's making a copy. Why would you say clone instead of copy? I'm not actually sure. But. And then hit return. So I, did you click a button so that you end up at projects? Because I copied that <coughs> and then I went to my command line terminal, which doesn't look like yours. Yeah, well, you're on a PC, so it's going to be different. But, uh, oh. It doesn't say projects. Did you add that? Oh, yeah, no. I set it as my default directory, which, don't worry. Uh, whatever your default directory is, is, is probably fine. I, my default is usually Tom J-O-H-T or something. So just, just go to the terminal and paste. Um, yeah, and in Windows, you may have to do, like, uh, right-click paste or something uh, to paste, paste it. Yeah, the terminal experience on Mac and Linux is much better than on Windows. Uh, I think there's some better Windows apps. Like, there's one, I think, called Terminal. Um, and then there's, like, the whole PowerShell side of things. But anyway. And you should see something like this, that it clones the project. So let's, say, let's pretend this is a sample SDK that you've cloned. You want to go and fix the comments in the source. Um, to get into, you could now find this using Finder or whatever. I believe if you type open dot, it's going to open the current directory. In Windows, I believe you type Explorer, Explorer, and it will do the same thing. But uh, here it is shown me the folder where it is. Um, you could just manually find it. Denver Workshops, all right? So, wow, that's getting small. Open up the README, make a change, and then we're going to push it back. So right-click, open it up in, in something like Sublime. This is a change. Click Save. All right. Pause here. So basically, wherever, wherever the file got cloned, the project got cloned, go there, whether you have to navigate with your GUI tools or if you just click uh, open it directly there from command line. Make a change to the README, click Save, and then go back to your command line and let me know when everybody's there. <coughs> okay. Um, from here, and by the way, there are all kinds of Git tutorials. I'm not trying to like, you know, teach you Git. I'm just trying to demonstrate the workflow that would be used. You would type git add, uh, and you could just put dot to make it simple. Dot means pretty much everything in the directory. Or you could do dash all, but I like dot. So git add dot, and that's going to, oh, whoops, I'm not in the Git repository, sorry. You got to change into the place where it cloned it, cd. Okay, so CD means change directory, and it works on Windows or Mac, Unix or Windows. Then git.add. Then follow that by git commit-m, and just something like my first commit, like that. Hit return, and then do git push. And you'll probably, probably be prompted for your credentials. There's a way to store that 
as a cache so you're not prompted. Um, then you should be able to go back to your Git repository, reload your readme, and see the change. So if you're successful if you have been able to do that. And when you are successful with that, raise your hand. Let me know. Can you go back? Because I yeah. Okay, so it was, uh, I think I actually have this in the workshop description somewhere. Um, git add dot git commit dash m space question mark um, some message git push and then you'll probably have to enter your github credentials which is like your username mine is tomjoht that kind of thing. A lot of times, um, if you're working with a development team, a good way to get the inside scoop of what they're doing is to look at their commit logs, because they don't do anything without describing what they're doing. Uh, the developers are very, like, very structured about how they add commit messages and how they track things. So it can be a, a way, you know, the more familiar familiar you become with Git, the more powerful it is as you interact with developers and working with their code as well as, you know, adding your own comments in there. How many people successfully updated their readme on there? Two? Man, three? Okay. <laughs> Probably the people who like already know Git uh, backwards and forwards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought it would prompt you for just your credentials rather than requiring you to to do all the other stuff. At any rate, um, there's plenty of Git tutorials, and uh, very commonly, what what you'll do is is maybe branch something and then create a pull request to have it merged into into the code. They probably nobody will probably give you rights to commit directly into like the master branch if they're developers, but that is the general interaction workflow. All right, we are coming to a close. It's 1.27. Are, are there questions or other topics that you feel we should have addressed or talked about that we didn't, that, that uh, either feedback for next time or just like more information? Are you guys tired? Are you like, man, I still have most of my Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good, good. Uh, there's plenty of information on the site that will take you through it in more depth. There's also great tutorials by Peter Grunbaum on Udemy, if you prefer video, um, and uh, other resources. But um, feel free to follow up with questions. If you do email me, tell me you were in the workshop so that I know. I do get like a million questions from all kinds of people asking things. Um, and uh, yeah, in closing, let me just say that this is a, a good space to be in. Um, somebody commented the other day, they, on TechWorld, they did a review of my site, which was a little weird. And somebody was saying that uh, they sort of lamented the fact that I had gone a, into a different direction with API docs, and they missed some of my blogs about like good old regular technical writing. And I was like, are they really different? I thought it was just kind of sort of the same same um, effort, <laughs> just a little different focus. 
And um, maybe it is a different world. Maybe, you know, this API doc space is substantially different and there's, you know, the, from the tools to the workflow to the content types, the structure, maybe it's really, uh, ha the comment has merit, it's substantially different. But when you learn to navigate that world, you are empowered and, and market-wise, there's tremendous potential learning-wise. There's a never-ending opportunity to just get more and more technical and uh, it can be fun because it's, it's so hands-on with all the requests. So thanks again for coming. And uh, thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah.